podcast. Social media is changing our minds. Social media acts like a drug. My guest today is Max Fisher. Max is a writer for the New York Times, and he's the author of a brand new, vitally important book called The Chaos Machine. 80% of Americans are taking a drug 15 times a day without realizing it's a drug. It's a referendum on all of the damage currently being wrought by social media. Social media has much more power to affect how you think and how you feel than you might believe. I've become increasingly convinced that the impact of social media and technology on our lives and the lives of our children is truly one of the great existential issues of our time. Just spending time on it, you inevitably end up not just serving the platform when you're online, but in your offline life, your emotional balance changes. I'm very excited to share with you what I think is a very important conversation. We're gonna get right into it in a sec, but first. Hey everybody, like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no-cost science-based habit-building program designed by my well-being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up-level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well-being, courtesy of a doable, evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP 804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on Inside Tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com slash livingproof. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. 
There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. All right, so without further ado, here we go. This is me and Max Fisher. So excited to have you uh, here today to talk about super important matters. Uh, You've written this incredible book, The Chaos Machine. I think this is gonna be a huge book. Uh, I think it talks about some of the most important issues of our time. I mean, the terrain Mm. of your reporting and what your book canvases, I've really become increasingly convinced really sits atop the great existential problems that we face, yeah. you know, as as a race, you know, it's a threat to our time. And despite the fact that there is plenty being written about this subject matter, a lot that's being said about it, I still think it's an issue or a set of issues that are underappreciated, undervalued, underrated in terms of their implications for the future of humanity. So I applaud you for writing this book. It really oh, is. Thanks, like the most comprehensive accounting of what's going on, like from this forensic perspective of how the internet is warping our minds, driving us apart from each other, increasing radicalization and and the like. And, And so I guess the first question I have for you is, it's an interesting subject matter for you to tackle because you're not a tech reporter, you're like a foreign affairs reporter, uh, you know, international affairs, et cetera. So talk a little bit about, you know, what brought you into this world and why it captured you. So to, you know, spend years writing, putting this book together. It wasn't something that I initially, I will be honest, took seriously. I thought of social media as, kind of this thing that was off to the side. I know that after 2016, there was this kind of question out there about, did social media have something to do with the Trump phenomenon and with the election? And I, maybe like a lot of people somewhat naively thought, well, maybe it's kind of a neutral amplifier for things that are already out there. Maybe it exaggerates certain tendencies a little bit, but it's just the internet. It's just Mm -hmm. a website. How influential could it possibly be? And that started to change for me. Uh, about a year after Trump's election, when I was in Myanmar to report on the genocide there, which was this really horrible and very sudden explosion of violence between the country's ethnic majority and an ethnic minority that partly was led by the state, but a lot of it was also ground up and spontaneous. And being there 
on the ground, I was far from the only person to notice that social media seemed to be playing some kind of a huge role in mm -hmm. what was happening. I mean, every conversation you would have with someone, whatever side they were on, they would always bring it back to social media. And even the United Nations, which it still blows my mind, the United Nations said this, one of their top officials later said that Facebook had played a determining role in the genocide, not just in hosting hate speech, not just in being a platform that extremists have manipulated, but in actually driving it by what their systems promoted and in how effective they were at inculcating so many people in that country into this point of view. And that started to really get my mind going because it felt in a lot of ways, somewhat similar to what had happened in the United States, this kind of like social upheaval that seemed to be linked back to this technology. Mm -hmm. And because shortly after that, I started noticing that pretty much everywhere I went as a reporter for the times, you know, traveling around to different parts of the world, I would hear really similar stories to the Trump phenomenon or to Myanmar that always seemed to link back to social media. And it would be smaller in scale. It would be a, a village that had erupted into violence. It would be a far right figure who had suddenly jumped from the fringes to uh, completely dominating their local society based on social media. And that was when I started to think, this is more than just a bunch of websites. It's more than just a bunch of apps. It's tapping into and it's changing something really powerful. And these big instances that we're seeing are probably just the tip of the mm -hmm. iceberg because if it's something whose effects are being cycled through all of us at this very individual granular level, then these changes are probably way deeper than we appreciate. And that became this four or five year quest to try to understand uh, as rigorously and empirically as I could, what that actual effect is. Was Myanmar the first international flashpoint for this? I mean, it sort of belies the idealistic promise of social media as borne out by Arab Spring, right? It's, it's right. like a mirror you know, reflection of that, the right. opposite of it. Um, but there is this sense or sort of a prevailing conventional wisdom that this is predominantly an American problem, right? Like just yeah. last week, the other day, Mark Zuckerberg on Joe Rogan's podcast, he was asked about polarization and his response was that it, there was something uniquely American about it. And your book is this global adventure where you basically put that lie to the test. And it's very clear that this is, although it's you know manifesting, metastasizing in the United States, it's an international problem. Like you're in Germany, right. you're in Austria, you're in Myanmar, you're in Sri Lanka, like all of these places where you're seeing incidents of animosity and violence and polarization that can directly be tracked back to the algorithmic power of these uh, you know, mega social media platforms and how that's driving behavior. You really did read the book. I did, yeah, <laughs> most of it. I told you, I'm, I'm about halfway through it. I know, well, it's, it's, it's very flattering to hear it, um, that it resonated. So to my great shame, there were actually instances that I covered well before 2016 that in retrospect were mm -hmm. exactly what you're saying, were these very similar patterns of polarization and turning society against itself. There was this case in 2013 in India, so a hundred years ago, basically, that looked a lot like the Trump phenomenon and Myanmar combined, where it was rumors that started with a couple of very small accounts on Facebook about Muslims and Hindus 
potentially threatening each other in one very remote part mm-hmm. of the country. And the system, even that far back when it was much more rudimentary and much less powerful than it is now, identified that rumor as something that was gonna really drive engagement and that was really going to excite users and not just glue them to the platform, but get them to share the rumor and to get people more people clicking. And so it pushed that out to huge parts of the country. And within a couple of weeks at this cycle that is now very familiar of misinformation leading to hate speech, leading to incitement, every step of it being promoted very assiduously by the platform led to this explosion of violence. And I think tens of thousands of people pushed out of their homes, which mm. if that had happened now, we would very readily identify this was something driven by social media, but it was a time, like you said, just after the Arab Spring, when we still thought of social media as something that was going to bring freedom and revolution. And the Obama administration actually stepped in to tell the Indian government, which had blocked a bunch of the websites that you need to unblock them because we believe in freedom and freedom of speech, which is mm-hmm. a perfectly reasonable position 10 years ago, but now we would maybe look at a little bit differently. So uh, maybe Mark Zuckerberg believes that polarization is something that is just happening in America and what could his platform possibly have to do with it? But he has been presented, including by Facebook's own researchers with reams and reams of evidence that its systems are not neutral and that it drives this behavior. Sure. I mean, the book opens with this whistleblower that you name Jacob, who yeah. becomes kind of a harbinger of you know what's to unfold in terms of the scale of the problem and the degree of difficulty in in tackling it. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, that seems to also be, you know, some you rooted this guy out and he becomes kind of a, a, a bit of a, a slight protagonist in terms of how you tell the story. He actually found me and he like a lot of people in the book who are, the whistleblowers, whether they're in Silicon Valley or outside of it, the people who study the platforms. He was someone who started as a true believer. He lives in a country where, I'm trying to think about how much I can say about where he lives, because I don't want him to get mm-hmm. you know, identified, where it was very important to him that social media was there to bring the freedom and democracy that people in Silicon Valley were promising. And he really believed in that. His job was to click through posts on the platform to say, this breaks the rules, this doesn't break the rules. They, Facebook and the other platforms employ thousands of these people to basically moderate and kind of manage the platforms. And he was uh, really worried because he saw that the hate and the lies and the misinformation seemed to be getting worse and worse all the time. And he had a, a fuzzy sense in the way that a lot of us did, but not proof that the system itself was driving it. And he also had this giant stack of documents that were mm-hmm. Facebook's internal rule books for how to govern the platform. And he passed those on to me because he said, these are, they're nonsense, they're gibberish. A lot of them don't make sense. They don't fit together. There are mistakes in them. And it, it, it's not that the rules are nefarious. Um, when I wrote a, a story for the Times on them, I think there were a lot of people looking for, well, they're you know trying to control free speech and trying to control politics. Mm-hmm. I think they're not. They're really just trying to tamp down PR crises in a lot of cases. Some of the documents say explicitly is the goal, but the attention and care and given to them was uh, at an alarmingly low level. And so that was why he wanted me to broadcast them out so that the people in the company who he thought and really believed wanted to do the right thing would come in and save the day and fix them. Right, and so that was that article that you wrote in 2018 Mm -hmm. for the Times, right? Where you kind of exposed all of this these manuals that are you know, almost impossible to consume, let alone memorize that are often contradictory in terms of <laughs> their rules right. about how to police this stuff. Right. And then you have these moderators who are working in sort of boiler room situations. Mm-hmm. 
having to make snap decisions in, in mere seconds based on posts, like it's an impossible task. This eight, is not the way that you're gonna be able to combat right. these problems. Eight seconds a post was what mm. he had to do. And not only can you not combat the problems, but they are, they're, they're janitors trying to clean up this mess that Facebook is making faster than they can possibly clean up. They're, they're kind of like um, air fresheners outside of a giant factory waste disposal mm -hmm. dump. You know, they could have more and more moderators and better rule books, but the problem was still what was coming out of the platforms. Right, so maybe steel man your case for the problem. Like what sure. is the problem? Oh man, what is the problem? I mean, in some, in some level, I think the most sympathetic case that you can make for the platforms is that on some level, the problem is human nature. Um, and an enormous amount of the book ended up being focused on something I did not think it was going to be focused on, which are the frailties in our nature, basically. And some of those are things that evolved in, some of them are ways that we constructed society, that we deal with our own impulses and instincts. And the basic problem I would say is that because these social media platforms are designed over all else to maximize engagement, which means just whatever they have to do to get you to spend more time scrolling, tapping and sharing so that they can sell more ads against you and so that you will hook in other users that they can sell ads to. Because of the ruthlessness of their systems, the scale of their systems and the fact that they work by playing on our most basic social impulses and our social needs, has made them incredibly powerful at bringing out instincts that we have tried to suppress in what you would call modernity uh, and at bringing out things that we know are harmful for us, but that are tough to resist when we have this platform that is giving us a reality where it feels like it's something that we have to do. It feels like it's something that's necessary or pleasurable to do. Mm -hmm. Right, so we have these huge companies powered by incredibly complex algorithms that mm -hmm. even the people who manage them don't understand how they work. Right. And these are, you know, driving people towards content, rabbit holes, et cetera, mm -hmm. that are forming opinions and often translating into behaviors in the real world, right? And you right. analogize this to Hal in 2001, where, where you know, man, man has made a machine that it doesn't quite understand machine destroys man. And we're in you know, some version of that dystopic mm -hmm. reality that's unfolding in real time amongst us. And I think there is, you know, there are people like yourself who are sounding the alarm bell, but I think there also is this sense, well, that's the internet. These are you know, sort of fringe people. This isn't what most people think. Maybe that's true, maybe that isn't, but you can't deny the real world ramifications that we're seeing getting played out through politics and just the decline or the denigration of, of public discourse and decorum across the world. Right, and it's something that I really wanted to emphasize in the book is that the, the kind of extremists, the you know, QAnon, Stop the Steal, the extreme edge cases, that's a really important part of the story. But I think in some ways, the more important part and the harder to confront part is the subtler, but still very consequential ways that it affects those of us who might think we're separate from that. that that's mm. those are those we people- We all think over we are. Right, we exactly. We all think we're immune from that. Right, we all think that we're, right, we're immune to it, we're smart enough to understand it, we see it, or maybe it affects us a little bit in the sense that 
you know, we know some habits are not healthy for us, but we do it anyway. And I, even someone who went in having made the decision to write a book about the harms of social media, so who could possibly be more overconfident in their own knowledge of it? I was shocked to learn about the ways that it was affecting me as someone who thinks they were one of the good ones and just me specifically, because it really, how do I put this? It is something that its influence can be so invisible and it, it's designed to be invisible. You open up your Instagram or your Twitter and you think you're seeing your community. You think you're seeing your friends or your family or you think you're seeing the voices you follow, the people you wanna hear from. And when you interact with them, the feedback that you get in terms of what travels, what gets likes, what doesn't get likes, you think that that is feedback from real people. But these are overwhelmingly the choices of these automated systems that are deciding what's gonna get attention, what's not gonna get attention because the amount of content that's on social media is huge and the amount of content you can see is tiny. So it can tell almost any story at once by what it pulls out and what presents to you and how it presents it to you. And it smuggles its choices through your community in a way that feels neutral, but is not. And in a way that has much more power to affect how you think and how you feel than you might believe because we derive so much of our emotional state and so much of our sense of how to behave and even what we think we want internally or how we feel internally from the cues that we take from people around us mm -hmm. or that we think are from the people around right. us. Right, and that's a big piece in, in the book, like our group identity and exactly. um, yeah. you know, how we kind of gauge status amongst our peers, et cetera. And when you look at what's being served up to you, even understanding that that choice is being made by an algorithm and that algorithm is selecting for engagement with the overriding goal being the platform maximizing as much time as possible. And also understanding that what drives engagement often are things that are at odds with our well-being, things like moral outrage, mm -hmm. outgroup dynamics, all of these sort of psychological, you know, kind of buzzwords and keywords that that drive engagement that are deftly understood by these, you know, equations, correct? And the people that design them. Um, but I think it's also important, and your book makes, you know, a big point of this, to understand that this is not a reductive situation. Like we can't mm -hmm. just say, well, we need to change the algorithms or we need to change, right. like this is systemic, it's baked into the very origin story of Silicon Valley altogether. And it was really yeah. fascinating as somebody who's, you know, I used to live in that area and I'm familiar with, you know, many of the people and the places that you describe in the kind of formation of this industry altogether and how that um, makes solving this problem so difficult because it's bred into the DNA of how these companies were built from the outset. So talk a little bit about that. I think it's super interesting. So. I mean, like we were talking about beforehand, in some ways it's a story of capitalism. And I mean, that's when you trace it back of the, that's in some ways the original sin where these companies were built on this very specific financial model that turns out to determine basically everything about how they work and what they do to you. And that financial model is called, I mean, of course, you know, this is called venture capitalism. And the idea is that someone comes in an investor and they give, a kid, because we're talking about the internet era. It used to be they would give someone who designed a widget 
a bunch of money and say, go build a factory and sell those widgets and they're, you know, semiconductors, something like that. So it might be a $10 million and it takes 20 years before it turns around and makes money. So you have to be really thoughtful about what's your business plan? Mm -hmm. How are you going to bring in revenue with the customers? That changed at the start of the internet era where the way that the model now worked for venture capitalists is you wanted to find a kid with a website. And the reason that you wanted to find a kid with a website is that you could give them very, very little money, a really, really small investment because it's basically free to start a website. And if they got enough users, whether or not they made a dime in profit and some of the biggest success stories in Silicon Valley never made any profit whatsoever, like Netscape, you could then sell it to a bigger company or you could go public. And then you would have what's called an exit where your initial investment for $10,000, now it's worth a million dollars or your initial investment for $300,000 is now worth $30 million. And what this created was this incentive where if you were an investor looking for the next big, next big hit, or if you were the uh, you know kid who's trying to start the next big tech company, what you wanna get is as many users as possible, as quickly as possible. And you do not care about what your business model is because that's someone else's problem after the, after mm -hmm. Oracle buys you for half a billion dollars. And that leads directly to the social media companies because their whole thing is owning your attention. That's the, that's the product that they're selling because more attention means more users, which means it's more attractive when you go for that exit. But the problem is that attention is finite. There are only so many people in the world and we only have so many seconds per day. So it created this arms race for how can, I mean, first it was MySpace, Orkut, these other companies that we've never even heard of now, and then Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, how can they compete to get that next second, that next flick of an eyelid? that they can sell ads mm -hmm. against. And as they start putting more and more money into this, because this is now the entire economy of Silicon Valley is fighting for your attention, these systems get more and more sophisticated. And as you said, even the engineers who are creating them, because these are automated AI driven systems, they don't even know how they're working or the choices that they're making. But because they are hiring really, really good people because they could pay whatever they want, they become incredibly powerful and effective at hooking people in. Yeah. But even beneath that, like going another layer deeper mm. into the origin story here, what's real, you know, I wanna get it like kind of the philosophy and the psychology oh, of these like, people, like which the tracks 80s and back 90s. all the way yeah. to okay. the defense contractors who fled the East Coast, where they could kind of innovate in a way that wasn't possible given the constraints of the way business was being done on the Eastern seaboard, created a free-spirited kind of iconoclastic mentality that with the advent of the semiconductor chip and everything that followed, bred a sort of sensibility of us against them. And we're rewriting the rule book. We're creating a revolution of ideas. We are free of these traditional constraints. You know, fast forwarding to that famous Apple ad where, you know, the, 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 the hammer is being thrown through the screen and that Orwellian, you know, kind of thing, like it's, you know, fuck tradition mm -hmm. and we're creating, you know, a new way of being in the world that is liberated, you know, in the truest sense of that definition from these traditional ways of, of, of being, I guess. Is that, I don't know if I'm yes. saying that no, correctly. No, no, that's, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, I misunderstood what you were asking about, but yeah, yes. No, I mean, not what you said is important, but like, I think like that very core philosophy right? makes solving the problem so difficult because this, whether you call it um, libertarianism or 
uh, you know, being an iconoclast, there is a there is a certain hubris that's kind of stacked into that mm-hmm. um, that we know better than you, right? right. I guess right. is the top level way of saying right. it. It's a it's a we know better than you that originates in, like you were saying, the very first companies in Silicon Valley, which was basically like, I think it was like um, peach packing plants, like not very long ago, mm-hmm. like 50, right. 60 years ago. And it was this total backwater that a couple companies moved out to because they were run by people who were, for lack of a better word, assholes or cranks, and they kind of couldn't make it back east. This was. Um, Shockley Semiconductor. And this sounds like this is this old name. This must be, you know, a hundred years ago, completely removed. But the thing about the Valley is that it is so small that just a couple companies that set the culture in the 50s and 60s, Shockley Semiconductor and Hewlett Packard, which are both these companies run by these iconoclasts where they said, we're gonna empower the engineer because the suits back East who were trying to tell us what to do you know, fuck them, we know better because Mm -hmm. we know how to do math and we're good at math science and that's what really matters. These people set the culture that still rules today because the people who worked at Shockley and at HP went on to go found the computer companies basically. And the people who founded the computer companies acted as these venture capitalists. So these are the people who are picking the winners of the next generation, designing the companies of the next generation. Right, the engineers become the funders. Exactly, the engineers, and it's it's very closed. And it's funny because it's this enormous center of wealth, but you're dealing with like a hundred bold face names that have selected and guided all the major winners from that first semiconductor generation up through the computers, up through the internet era, and then up through social media. And they have been passing on these ideas. And part of it also comes from the venture capital model, which says, I'm not gonna find a traditional company. I'm gonna go find an engineer who makes a really good widget and I'm just gonna give him a ton of money and he's gonna know what to do best. And as an engineer, you internalize that and you say, well, if I'm the best at making widgets. That means that I should also be in charge of building the company, designing the products. And what happens is the products, which start as just technical stuff. When you're making semiconductors, if you have a big eagle, that's fine. What's what's the danger in that? Mm -hmm. The products become the infrastructure that run the world basically with computers first and then the internet. And then with social media, it becomes the infrastructure that sets our social mores and it sets our political norms. And when you have that engineer mentality, which still holds that says, if I as an engineer think that this is the right way to run things, then who are these other people to tell me? And it's, who was this line from Mark Zuckerberg? I think it's, uh, society is an engineering problem. Exactly, right. Society it's an engin- is a problem that engineering can solve. Right, right. Yeah. And he's, he's said before that I bet there's a math equation for how we balance the, or the, the balance of relationships in our life and what we care about. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's a little scary. And it's a little scary when you have 23 year old, 24 year old Mark Zuckerberg and around the Arab Spring saying, we are going to set out to fundamentally rewire society from the ground up because we're the smartest ones and we're the people to do it. Right, so you have that sort of engineering mentality and at some point that intersects with social psychology, right? And so Mm -hmm. much of this can be tracked back to BJ Fogg's class at the, what's the lab called that he- Persuasion lab. Yeah, so all of these students, Tristan Harris being among them, uh, Kevin Systrom, founder of Instagram, like a lot of people took his class that went on to found these companies. And he was really, you know, steeped in this, in this social science of how to drive engagement and, you know, how the human mind operates to, you know, kind of, you know, create products and tools that will, mm-hmm. you know, basically addict people. 
It's so crazy to read the transcripts of conferences from like 10 years ago, which is kind of the peak of this era of like the persuasion lab and this guy mm -hmm. near AL who wrote this book, I think it was called Persuasion that was basically explaining how to implement these ideas, how open a lot of these consultants in the Valley were and a lot of the CEOs in the Valley were about, we wanna design products that are going to be deliberately addictive and not just addictive in the sense that it's like a game and it'll be fun to use, but chemically addictive and that we are going to exploit dopamine and that we're going to model our products on casinos and on slot mm -hmm. machines. And that's why your phone, it looks like a slot machine very deliberately where it has these little buttons and these widgets and it makes the little like vibration haptic feedback when you use it. And that is designed like your Pavlov's dog to train you to associate certain feedback with using your phone. And there's one case from one of these lectures that was, you know, they would never say this now because they know how bad it sounds, but the 10 years ago in the Valley it was very common where this consultant who is teaching companies how to do persuasion, which means getting your customers to change their behavior. It sounds a little scarier when you define it. This example that he used was that Facebook creates a sensation when you go onto it, he uses this hypothetical one, Barbara. Barbara goes onto Facebook because she wants to connect with her friends and family. And Facebook creates a simulation of that, that actually feels like it is really exaggerated in scale. And it feels like a much more extreme version of that connection. Because when you connect with someone in the real world, you have, you know, when you chat with people in the real world, you're dealing with maybe five people at once and mm -hmm. the feedback that you'll get will be kind of implicit. When you go onto social media, if you post something, you might get positive feedback from 20 people or a hundred people or a thousand people. So it chases this desire for human connection and then serves you an exaggerated version of it. And it serves it to you at this incredible convenience so that when you want that feeling, you'll pick up your phone instead of going to find a person. But the thing about this that's really pernicious is that it doesn't actually deliver that feeling of connection. And this consultant was very open about this. He said that what it gives you is a dopamine boost mm -hmm. that you get that initially makes you think that you are satisfying the social urge to connect with other people. But in fact, because it does not fulfill it, you will continue to be lonely and crave that. So you would go back to Facebook more and more. And then over time, Barbara, this woman who he invented, will learn to pick up her phone and to really chase this feeling of connection through her phone that she will never get by design so that she'll keep picking it up more and more, which I think I don't, resonated with me when I heard that. Yeah, I mean, that is dark, right? It is, it's yeah, like so it dark. really is. I mean, you're yeah. essentially setting up a digital environment that is equivalent to chasing the dragon. Like you're yes. trying to get hot, you're never gonna quite get that high, right. but it's luring you back time and time again. I really, think that if there's one thing I want people to take away from this book, it's not about the political ramifications. It's not about regulation with tech companies. All that stuff is really important, but I would just really like for people to take away that social media acts like a drug and to think of it like a drug. And I think when you start to see that this is something that doesn't just deliberately deliberately by design addict you like a drug, but that it also changes your behavior and it changes the way that your mind works akin to a drug. It makes it much easier to understand because it's, um, it's a drug that hides itself because you don't realize that that's what it's doing. You think you're just going on and you're talking to your friends, but you're actually not. You're mm -hmm. interfacing with this technology. And it's also a very pernicious drug because whereas say alcohol will play on 
or distort um, your mood, your sense of balance. It's mostly a hormonal physical response. Social media plays through social impulses that we are not used to thinking of as affected by drugs, but it is something that absolutely changes that. And it is a drug that each of us takes, I think the average is like 15 times mm -hmm. a day, every mm -hmm. single day. Um, I think American life makes a little bit more sense if you think that 80% of Americans are taking a drug 15 times a day without realizing it's a drug and some things start to kind of click into place. Yeah. And I think that if you see it that way as a consumer trying to navigate life that is you know, dominated by social media, it becomes a little easier to understand what's the difference between what's coming from me and things that I actually want or, um, emotions or urges that I'm actually feeling and what's being instilled in me by this drug that's delivered to me by the largest companies in human history. Sure, and it goes back to that point you made earlier about how we all think that we're independent minded and 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 we're not prone mm -hmm. to being impulsed in that way. Like I'm right. strong enough, I'm, I'm, I'm of sound minded body, I can resist this or I'm not gonna get lured down some crazy rabbit hole because I'm sentient and independent in thought and all the like, right. but you know, as movies like The Social Dilemma did such a good job of showing, you know, we are powerless against mm -hmm. the amount of science and technology that's gone into the addictive mechanism here. So right. there was two things that you said, there's the addiction piece, right. which I think we've explored, you know, I've had plenty of conversations on this podcast yeah, yeah. with people like Johan Hari about that right. very thing. I'm more interested in this behavior piece that mm -hmm. you alluded to, like it is changing our minds. It's literally changing how we think. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you change someone's mind, it's going to change their behavior. And right. so there's tons of interviews that you've done in this book and people that you've spoken to about this very thing. So maybe like, Help us understand that and flesh that out a little sure. bit. Yeah, let me give you two examples, one that is kind of small and one that's a little bit bigger. There is this very specific type of sentiment called a moral emotional sentiment. And that's a complicated way of saying any emotion or sentiment that touches on both an emotional feeling and also the moral component means something that implicates what we think of as social mores or right and wrong. So if I said that you were a really kind person or I said that you were a liar, those are moral emotional sentiments. Um, another way to think of it is just outrage. Outrage is the most mm -hmm. powerful moral emotional sentiment and outrage is different from anger because it means I think that you have transgressed a wrong against the community. And I think that you've transgressed a wrong against the social norms that hold us together. There was this fascinating experiment that I write about in the book where these researchers tried all sorts of different words on a fake Twitter platform to see what were the words that were, um, were going to increase engagement. And they basically every kind of sentiment was much closer to neutral that they thought. Angry words didn't seem to have much of an effect, left-leaning or right-leaning words, sad words, happy words, uh, even words like car wreck, like exciting words didn't have much of a difference, but every moral emotional word had a 20% increase in the reach of any tweet that contained it, which is huge, mm -hmm. that's nuts. Although if you have spent time on Twitter, that's something that you very quickly learn is that that is the kind of sentiment that travels. But the piece of this experiment that really stuck with me because honestly it hit a little close to home is that they would take these research subjects and they would try to pull them and basically gauge their sense of internal outrage as a person, how prone to outrage were they at people who they thought of as their outgroup, you know, if they're liberal, people they thought of conservatives, vice versa, 
you know, it can be a division by race, by religion. And people who had a very low propensity to outrage, if the researchers nudged them to say, you know, send a couple tweets with outraged words in them, what would happen is that subject would send those tweets and they would get a lot of engagement because that's what the platform does. It identifies those as engaging and pushes them out to mm-hmm. a lot of people and gives you a social reward in terms of lots of likes and retweets is that the subject would internalize that and first start to send more tweets like that just to chase the high. But then soon enough, that urge would start to come from within. The research subject would send outrage tweets even if they didn't get a reward because their nature had fundamentally been changed. And the what they found in the polls and studies they would take with these individual people is their the outrage they felt internally, even when they were offline, had increased. So this training effect of the platforms in terms of what works is so powerful that just spending time on it, you inevitably end up not just serving the platform when you're online, but in your offline life, your emotional balance changes. It's really terrifying, you know, when you think (laughs) about that. The fact that something performative could Mm -hmm. become so internalized that it changes your sensibility and your identity and how you think and how you behave is essentially what you're saying, right? I can't remember, what was the phrase that was used? It was something really benign, like, you know, let the the cat chases the dog or something like that. And then you just, (laughs) the cat chases the angry dog, or you would would start inserting like those kind of moral outrage keywords. The quick brown fox. And then gauge, you know, engagement or how how that tweet would traffic and it would go way up, Right, right? right? But the fact that somebody could, from an addictive point of view or from a external validation point of view, start tweeting outrageous stuff for attention, Mm -hmm. then over time start to believe those sentiments. And then obviously if you believe those things, you're gonna behave differently. That's what I try to tell when I talk to people who spend a lot of time online, you can always tell, and I used to be one of these people that they're a little bit divided between thinking like, well, I know it's not good for me, but I like being on it, or I think that there's a lot that's good about it. The thing that I would tell them is, look, even if you discount the effect that your tweets have on other people, even if you discount the effect that having these kind of emotional high valence tweets will have on the public square and broader discourse, you were training yourself. You were you were turning yourself into, you know, the rat hitting the lever mm-hmm. and you don't realize it, but you are, you are changing the way that you think and feel in order to serve these companies that already have plenty of money. Yeah, it's wild. We were talking earlier today actually kind of about some of the comments that we get. Like when, when the show reached a certain level of scale, like you mm-hmm. can't escape negative criticism, like it's sure. just part of the deal, right? Yeah. But I've noticed the tone and tenor of so the criticism nastier. getting darker. Yeah. And you know, it's it's words like, you know, outrageous or I'm so disappointed in you, you know, like mm-hmm. you didn't talk about this and you talked about that. Like I'm sorry, are you really that disappointed? <laughs> like is this that mean? You know, like right. the 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 kind of level of negative acrimony is right. at a pitch that feels different, new and unique. Yeah. But it makes sense, right? Right. The thing that really stayed with me or struck me was the story about Tay, the Microsoft AI trained Twitter bot <laughs> and how it, because like yeah. this, we're getting into this, the conversation about radicalization, like True. this is how it begins, right? right? So I think, tell that story because I think it really illustrates and underscores like how this can happen and how quickly it can happen right. 
This is in a computer example, but then we can talk about how this happens in human beings. So this was a chatbot that Microsoft designed where it was a, a robot run Twitter account that would talk to people. And there've been a lot of variations on this, but what was different about this one is because it was on this platform that is the largest open forum in human history. It was absorbing a huge amount of data in the form of people interacting with it and in seeing what engagements did well and what didn't. And within, I don't remember what it was, it was like a few days, like very, very quickly, this bot that was just meant to have friendly conversations with people had turned into a, an actual neo-Nazi. Right, it was literally <laughs> tweeting out insane <laughs> Nazi aphorisms. And yes, <laughs> yeah. And some of that and was they like- they had to pull the plug on it. Like right away, yeah. yeah. And some of that was, um, trolls basically who knew how to kind of push the buttons right, to get it to say right. crazy things. I mean, that's, was that coming from 4chan then? Like, oh, let's see how, if we can radicalize this bot and how quickly we can. I'm sure some yeah. of that. And that was that was the kind of defenses that like, look, some bad actors distorted this thing, but okay, that's what your algorithm is doing. That's what the algorithms on these platforms are just a version of this bot, except instead of talking to us, it's determining what are the things that will win engagement and then subtly nudging us towards that. So it was mm -hmm. this kind of, look behind the curtain, so to speak, at what these systems are absorbing and what's actually out there on the platforms in the aggregate, what direction it points in, mm. it's pretty ugly. Yeah, well, in this archeology span of, of radicalization, you kind of create this timeline of how this, you know, came to be and then, you know, today how pernicious it is. And I can't help but think back to, you know, what Kevin Roos did with Rabbit Hole and had him on the podcast talking about that. It feels, oh, you did. Oh, it nice. feels quaint. I know. That was during yeah. COVID, so we did that virtually. Oh, okay. But you know, I was riveted by that podcast series. I encourage yes. I, I, you should be doing this every year. Like these stories never end and yeah. it's becoming more and more intense, obviously. Yeah. But that feels more. like very quaint now compared right. to like the way that you describe it. Right. Um, and it feels like this funnel, it's really a funnel it situation a funnel. Yeah. that, you know, begins in places like 4chan and then 8chan, filters to Reddit, mm -hmm. and then Reddit filters onto Facebook. And maybe maybe it bifurcates at that point between Facebook and YouTube, and then right. obviously spills into the real world. But a real early flashpoint in the understanding of this radicalization process begins with Gamergate. Mm -hmm. Right. So Gamergate is something that many of us have probably forgotten about. And if we do remember, we probably remember it as a kind of fringe internet weirdo thing. But I think it's it's important to think about both because it seeds internet culture as we know it, and especially the kind of alt-right troll Pepe the Frog mm -hmm. internet culture. And also because it becomes the model for so many patterns that are to follow after that. And basically how it starts is you have a lot of gamers are one of the first big early adopters on social networks, which is why this happens first with gamers. It's why Gamergate comes mm -hmm. before the alt-right, it comes before anti-vaxxers, these other things. And a lot of them are young white guys who um, maybe spend a lot of time at home, maybe feel a little bit lonely, which is why they play video games or not, I shouldn't say it, it's why they play video games. In some cases, it might be why it is more attractive as an identity than other forms of identity. And something that the systems figured out really early on. And I talked to a guy at YouTube who worked inside the company on the algorithms and identified this and tried to you know, set off a siren basically to say, this is really dangerous. Something that the systems picked up is that you could show them gaming videos and maybe they watch for 10 minutes. And 
if you showed them something that spoke to their sense of identity and presented it as under siege, they would watch for much, much longer. So anything that said gamers are under attack and that mm-hmm. happened to dovetail very effectively with the sense of, I don't know if confusion is the right word, anime maybe that a lot of young men feel about just looking for their place in the world, which is perfectly normal, of course. But again, what YouTube identified is that if you are a 13 year old white guy, something that will really powerfully speak to you is a sense that your identity is under threat as a 13 year old white guy. So what was the villain that these algorithms came up with was um, feminists and you know, so-called social justice warriors. And it constructed partly on YouTube, partly on 4chan happening somewhat more organically, but by basically the same mechanisms, this conspiracy that sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud, which is that video game developers and video game journalists were in league to suppress the white male spirit by engineering masculinity out of video games and uh, imbuing them with feminist and LGBT characters and ideas, which Mm -hmm. is crazy, right? It's nuts. but these systems are really effective at gradually nudging people into ideas. And in fact, that's their that's favorite a key way. point. Right. Yeah. And it's their favorite way to nudge people in because if they just show you an extremist video, maybe you watch for 20 minutes, but if they show you 10 videos that gradually bring you up to the idea, then maybe you're watching for four hours and that's all they want. They mm-hmm. just want you watching more, that's it. So, so the intent isn't to gradually radicalize you. The intent is just to keep you on the platform for as long as possible. And these right. algorithms had discovered that the best way to do that right. is to nudge you in a certain direction. And as that tap kind of slowly broadens, that's gonna keep people engaged right. in the best way. Right. People who research extremism, terrorism recruitment call that the crisis solution construct. And the idea is that if you are a recruiter for let's say ISIS, you go to someone and you say, I can see that you are in crisis because you're depressed, because you don't have a job, because you're not sure of your place in the world. That crisis is not actually an individual one. It's one that afflicts our entire community of, um, if it's ISIS, you you would say Muslims. If it's Gamergate, you would say young white male gamers. It's a collective fight, but don't worry because I have the solution to your crisis, which is that we are going to come together and collectively fight the enemy, whether it's Christians, feminists, Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't really matter who it is. It's just an in-group, out-group thing, the aggrieved group, and then the solution to solving the aggrievement. Exactly, right. And it's terrorist recruiters love this because it is something that radicalizes people into action by turning this idea of of this all-consuming struggle into their entire identity. And algorithms love it because that community becomes something that can be super engaging because it makes you wanna spend more and more and more time on the platform, engaging with the ideas, fighting this battle. In the the case of Gamergate, the way that it was fought was just a campaign of horrific harassment against uh, pretty much every woman involved in the video game industry Mm -hmm. or video game journalism. I interviewed this guy who was, a kid had a, um, a hearing problem, so he had a stutter. So he spent a lot of time online because that was the place where he was comfortable connecting to other people. But he was on 4chan and Reddit when this was happening. And he just got swept up, not because he innately hates women or because he's innately a monster, but because it provided the most supercharged sense of community and togetherness mm-hmm. that these platforms could possibly deliver. Yeah. Purpose. Purpose, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Gamergate happens, 
And everything you need to know about what's happening now is kind of packed into that story. But at the time it was sort of considered a fringe internet thing. Like this yeah. isn't the real world. Like, yeah, that's right. interesting that that happened, but you know, we're all living over here and that's more of a curiosity than anything else, right? right? And it takes a long time, despite you know many Cassandras like sounding the alarm bell saying, we should pay attention to this because right. this is only escalating and there are gonna be bigger and larger ramifications to this. Um, it wasn't really given proper consideration at the time. I didn't, I, right. didn't, I didn't take it seriously. And then, you know, even things like Pizzagate and the inception of QAnon and all of that, like right. it's just weird, right? right. Like, well, normal <laughs> normal people aren't, you know, thinking that that this pizza parlor is is, you know, really secretly a place where human trafficking. It, right. It's just like you'd have to be kind of crazy to believe right. that. So it's easy to dismiss, mm -hmm. um, but really, it is the roots of any other kind of uh, radicalization funnel that we're saying, like the principles remain mm -hmm. the same. Right, and the platforms are really good. And this is not something that people at the companies are doing consciously at identifying those conspiracy or crazy ideas that are going to be the most engaging, whether it's Gamergate, whether it's Pizzagate and pushing them out to as many people as possible and creating a larger community around them. One of the examples that I think about a lot from YouTube, which is actually quite similar to Gamergate, but it's a version that I think it, it certainly felt much more familiar to me, is um, if you, for a long time, if you search depression on YouTube, you get a Jordan Peterson video and he is someone who will reframe your depression as part of this larger struggle. And he doesn't say, therefore you should join the all right. That's not, mm -hmm. you know, to be fair to him, he says that it's, you know, social justice warriors or feminism or suppressing the masculine spirit. But YouTube's system has learned how to make this connection that if you were depressed or if you're interested in learning about depression, this is a video that you watch, it's very long because it has this crisis solution mm -hmm. construct. And once it shows you that, it can then show you a video that is slightly more all right. And then one that goes further and further right from that. And it will link them all together and create this community, this kind of downward funnel of extremism that even the people who are making the videos aren't conscious of and are not right. deliberately engendering. Right, they're just independently making their thing, but it's one puzzle piece in this mm -hmm. larger algorithmic picture chain, that leads yeah. people in a certain one way direction right. for the most part, right? right? And when I think about this, whether it's, you know, ISIS or incels, these, you know, the, the inception point for almost all of these problems mm -hmm. can be pinpointed to the disenfranchised young male yeah. amidst a culture of you know widening income disparity and right. lack of opportunity and perhaps a dearth of strong healthy male mentors or guidance in their lives who become sure. susceptible to influence particularly strong male sometimes authoritarian influence or just right. just strong males who are like get your shit together, like make your bed Jordan Peterson style or, or, or whatever it is who like kind of need that voice right. in their life, right? Yeah. And there are healthy versions of that and there are unhealthy versions of that. And maybe one that's you know slightly bending in a certain direction is gonna tilt that algorithmic arc into an unhealthy destination yeah. ultimately. But what is your response to the argument that this is a mental health problem as much as anything else? Like we have to solve the depression situation and from an economic perspective, we have to create more opportunity for these young males so that they don't end up so vulnerable mm -hmm. to these 
you know, information silos right. and get radicalized in that way. Obviously, you know, it's a huge problem. It isn't one thing or the other, but right. you know, this is what's fueling so much of the problems that we're seeing kind of metastasize in the real world. I think that that is absolutely true. I think that it is absolutely, it, it's not something that you can pin entirely on social media and the, the vulnerability that people feel because of a loss of control, a loss of autonomy in society. I feel like that is something that I see over and over in the people who get pulled furthest down this rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that sense of needing a way to feel like you have some agency in the world is, um, it's not a need that social media created. It's very good at exploiting, but you're right that as long as that is there, there's going to be some mechanism, whether it's a social media algorithm or something else that finds a way to exploit that, to turn it towards some other nefarious end. So I think there are, there are a lot of vulnerabilities that social media exploits, but does not create. And in some ways, mm -hmm. the, the answer is to think about those vulnerabilities and not just the platforms. Yeah, I mean, that has to get addressed in tandem with- yeah. Absolutely. With the, you know, the other problem that we're talking about. But, you know, it is, it's like, it's amazing. You have vast communities of, you know, somewhat wayward people mm -hmm. who are extremely online and are looking for <laughs> connection and belonging, right? right? Yeah. And, and a lot of these communities, whether they're on 4chan or Reddit or Facebook groups or what have you, are serving that purpose. They're making right. people connected to other humans through some sense of shared aggrievement or right. a sense of identity at defining who they are in opposition to, you know, maybe a more traditional in-group. Yeah, yes. And something that you hear a lot when you talk to people who work in de-radicalization, whether it's online or not online, is that often the answer, even though it sounds pat, it sounds simplistic, is just to help someone find a new sense of community and connection. And a lot of the stories end, with, um, you know, oh, he was in an extremist group, but then he got a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And it, it sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like, uh -huh. like it couldn't possibly be that simple or it couldn't possibly be that superficial. And it does, when it's weighed up against a, a great political cause, you say, well, how could you de-radicalize someone from believing in literal race genocide by getting a partner, getting a romantic partner? But the, the need that is driving it is ultimately rarely political and mm -hmm. it is usually personal and that sense of connection. Someone finding um, a church or finding another sense of community. I mean, the thing that I did to kind of unplug myself from social media and to, you know, I don't think I was radicalized, but we're all micro radicalized by social media. The thing that I did to de-micro radicalize myself was just find um, group chats. Mm -hmm. and just set up a like slack of friend groups that I've used to replace social media and just spend more time with people in person, which it, it sounds so pat. It sounds like they couldn't possibly be the answer, but I think it really is. Yeah, so you you changed your media exactly. uh, diet habits. Right. right. So what changes did you make? So the answer that you usually will hear people say, I was just listening to an interview with someone who was talking about this and she was saying, well, spend some time on social media and then spend some time reading traditional news outlets and try to determine which one is giving you better information. And that made me laugh because we know the answer and also mm -hmm. that's not how people work. Yeah. You know, 
It's not why people are spending more time on social media. I think the replacement that I made and that I would really encourage people to make is to identify the thing that social media is giving you that you're finding addictive is the feeling of validation, the feeling of connection, the feeling of having a community whose support, maybe you're getting or not getting, but you were definitely chasing. And if you can replace that with um, you know, a group of runners or a group that you go cycling with or what I did and just had a big like, group chat that I check in with 30 times a day instead of checking Facebook and Twitter 30 times a day, it will supplant the need that is driving you to the social platforms. And I think that will take care of a lot of the downstream Mm. effects of how it's changing your politics, how it's changing your emotional valence. Yeah, so there's that piece, that feeling of of connection and the Mm. external validation that comes with social media use, but sort of related but separate is the issue of validating your information feed, right? Sure. There's misinformation, yeah. there's disinformation, there's propaganda, there's traditional news sources. And more and more people are consuming their news mm-hmm. online. They're not right. going offline to actually get a physical newspaper or less and less are they watching cable news. It's more about like what shows up in their feed, right? right. And these, new you know quote unquote news sources some mm. of some legit and some of ill repute it's becoming more and more you have to become a lot more savvy and sophisticated to discern the difference between what is vetted and legitimate versus something that is not right and right. i don't see that problem getting any easier to solve i mean i think you know especially young users are more sophisticated in mm-hmm. certain ways of of you know they're more internet literate but I don't I see this problem becoming more problematic especially as technology advances and you know we're going to see deep fakes and all this other yeah. kind of stuff it's going to get right. super crazy compared to what it, it's going to feel quaint right now yeah. compared to where it's headed right. and I don't see a lot of discussion about how we're going to manage that or what we're doing right now to kind of vet news sources right so the this is I think one of my most kind of categorical takes on social media and how to deal with it is that you are, I think, full stop, not going to be accurately informed on social media. And it's not just, are you following the right accounts? Are you you know, careful about which news sources you read? Because you could do that, but the ways that things are framed on social media is still going to be consistently misleading. And it's more fundamental than that too. The way that you consume information completely flips and changes when it's in a social context than when you're just reading an article. There's this really fascinating study that I write about in the book where a bunch of researchers got some Republicans, conservative voters, and they showed them a, what was it? It was a fake headline about um, Central American refugees showing up at the border. It said something outrageous, like all the refugees are actually criminals with ISIS. It's something clearly false. And if they would ask people, even very serious committed Republicans, whether or not they considered the headline to be true, just the headline, do you think it's true? The overwhelming majority would say, no, that's not true. And then they would ask them, do you wanna share that on Facebook? And they would say, no, I don't wanna share it on Facebook because it's not true. But if they showed another set of Republicans, conservatives, the same headline, but they dressed it up as a Facebook post. Mm -hmm. And if the first question they asked was, do you wanna share that on Facebook? The overwhelming majority would say yes. And then if they asked, is that true? They would say, yes, that's true because I just shared it on Facebook. So when we are in a social context, we're not judging for accuracy. We might think we are, we might be trying to, we might have set up the right outlets to follow, 
but it's not what we're looking for. What we're looking for is identity. We're looking for validation. We're looking for things that we think other people in our community want to see. So I think my advice for individuals, which doesn't solve the problem systemically, I know, is just don't read headlines or news in a social context. Just don't do it. Good luck with that. I know. Right? You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, that's like, you know, you're trying to climb the waterfall with that on some level. And I, I, I think yeah. an added kind of ripple or nuance to what you just shared is it's not just the post that you see on Facebook, it's who shared the post, right? right? It's how they shared it. Who is that person? Do you identify with them? Mm-hmm. And then this terrain that you get into in the book about what are they called? Super sharers? Super posters. Super posters, yeah, right? Yeah. Who, who have like this air of legitimacy, like, oh, I want to align with that person. I believe like they're credible in other areas. So if they're mm-hmm. sharing this, I don't need to read the article. I can read right. the headline. And because I feel aligned with them or I want to be aligned with that person, I will just reflexively reshare right. it. Right. Can I tell you about the school bullying thing that kind yeah. of led me to that? Because I this unlocked so much for me. And I feel like helped me really understand how social media can change your sense of morality and right and wrong. So I was working on a story that was related to this research that areas with higher Facebook usage saw more racist attacks on refugees, basically. And I was trying to figure out, is that could that be true? And could social media actually change your sense of right and wrong? Which is something that I think a lot of us suspected, but how can you actually demonstrate that. And I went to this woman named Betsy Levy Pollock, who's a researcher, I think at Princeton, and she's got a genius grant and she's a very smart mm-hmm. lady. And I said, how, how would you try to go about figuring this out? And she had worked a lot in like Rwanda and Jenny Sideris, which I thought she would wanna to talk to me about, but she said, actually the biggest comparable case here is school bullying. This really interesting study that she did where she went to a bunch of high schools and she had this theory that people determine whether or not they think bullying is okay to do, not based on any internal moral compass or not based on what their teachers tell them, but by what they think their peers collectively believe. But they can't, you can't put out a poll if you're a kid to know what do all of your peers believe. So she said that she thinks the shorthand people were using was trying to spot the few people in their community who seem to be the most influential and the most visible, judge what they think about bullying, and then they would mirror their internal beliefs, their sense of morality, right and wrong off Mm -hmm. of that. And she tested this by identifying the like 20 kids out of like every thousand, a really small number who seemed to be the most visible and who had been, I guess you would say supportive of bullying. Maybe they were bullying people on Instagram, online and got them to just stand up and say to their community in some context, I actually think bullying is wrong and you don't, I don't think that you should do it. And just doing this, just having the influential kind of norm setters in the community change what they were conveying out to the rest of the community completely flipped everyone in the school. Mm -hmm. And not only was there much less bullying after that, but the surveys that she would take of the students found that they internally had come to think that bullying was wrong. So this is this idea of social reference that we derive our norms from a few influential people that we use to infer the whole community. And on social media, the way that those social reference get picked out is the platforms designate a few people who they believe, their systems believe are going to be very engaging to us. These are super posters. And it puts those people in front of us over and over again. I bet if you opened up your Twitter feed, the algorithm would show a few people on the top over and over again. 100%. Because those are the people who you engage with, right? Right. I mean, the same thing happens on my feed. 
And it's a few people who the system has just learned. I look at their tweets a little bit longer. Maybe I'm likelier to like it or reply to it. These are people who I pay attention to. And it's going to surface posts from those people and those individuals who deliver the type of content that is most engaging, which means the most outraged, which means the most kind of us versus them, the most tribal. And these are also people who have been studied a little bit in the last two years and kind of their psychological temperament. And it's um, it's a little concerning. They're basically bullies themselves. They have a few tendencies. Uh, grandiose narcissism is one of them, which is associated with insecurity. And that's why these people use social media a lot because they really need the validation of uh, something called negative social potency, which means someone who derives pleasure from seeing other people in pain. This is also something that plays really well mm -hmm. on social media, because if you're someone who goes on and yells at like, hey, look at this idiot, look at what this person said, that's something that will drive a lot of engagement. So these are the people who offline are not influential. And I went and interviewed a few of these people who were elevated by the platforms and they're they're not basement dwellers. They're just like regular people who happen to be really hyperactive and a little bit mean on social media, but they set the norms for these entire communities. Yeah, and that's something that that is true on the right and the left. Absolutely. Like if you're looking yeah. at the political sphere, there is similar like strategy or tactics that are right. at play. Like there's Schadenfreude at like oh, pointing out like the mm -hmm. the misstep of the out you know the party that they're making fun of, etc. Sometimes it's mean spirited. Sometimes it's comedy. It's a ferocity of volume, right. you know, right. like yeah, it's exactly. lots of posts, right? right? Right. And it's interesting what what no matter what silo you go into, it's mm -hmm. those are the people that rise to the top and that the algorithm is going to elevate. And they right. do. They set the tone. Like, oh, right. this is what's acceptable in this discourse to be part of this in group and to signal your membership in good standing by resharing it or exactly. doing your version of that post. Right, and these are people who in the offline world, if they're especially noisy or kind of obnoxious would be maybe shunned or maybe would not be that influential, but it is behavior that serves the algorithms rather than the social norms. So it's, what's get, it, mm -hmm. it's what gets elevated. And it's something that happens not just in political spheres, but one of the big, cases that I talk about in the book is this happening in basically mom blog groups and where this leads over time, where you have these forums of young parents who are sharing information. And this was like gamers, one of the first really big communities to migrate online because you have a lot of Gen X moms who are, you know, trying to figure out this parenting thing. It seems hard. That the people who would rise in that community were the people who were conspiratorial, who had the kind of sharpest criticism of doctors or of government policy around childcare and where this ultimately ended up leading over time was towards anti-vaxxers, which mm -hmm. grew out of these mom Facebook groups, mom YouTube channels, because it was the endpoint of all of that kind of negative social potency and this tilt towards conspiracy and conspiracism and extremism that would get promoted on the pages. Right, and Rene DiResta being kind of yeah. the tip of the spear exactly. and rooting that out and, yeah. and and helping to you know people to really understand how right. that how that transpired. Yeah, yeah, I was very happy to talk to her a lot in the book, and she is someone else who started as a real true believer. I mean, she was an investor in Silicon Valley. She was going to the conferences. She was involved with some of these companies, and she started to see this kind of interesting parallel. On the one hand, she was online and she would see 
what the hell is going on? These Facebook groups all of a sudden have crazy anti-vaccine sentiment that is a complete minority offline, but is totally dominant online, which she later figured out was because it just performs so well. And at the same time, she's in Silicon Valley and she's going to these investment conferences and she's saying, well, why do these companies that have no revenue model that have no way to bring in any money, but just say, oh, I'm gonna get a, a billion users and then sell ads against it. Why are they getting all of the investment money? So it was mm -hmm. funny to, to talk to her to see these kind of two things converging in once and where it ended up right. being. And of course, similarly, this gets played out in all kinds of other issues. You talk about you know the anti-immigration situation is Germany or Austria. Yeah, Germany, yeah. Yeah, where you know, there's this sense if you're online that there is a tremendous amount of acrimony, you know, towards these communities of people mm -hmm. that doesn't really represent accurately the true sentiment of the greater population. Right. But ultimately right. ends up driving a lot of, you know, really bad behavior. Yeah. It was wild going to these towns, and this is a story I did for the Times of the Time, and it's a chapter in the book where everything in the town would seem great. Um, like people were really friendly towards, they would be big refugee populations because this is like 2015, 2016, mm -hmm. when a lot of refugees had just come from Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan. So there's a lot of resettlement happening in small towns. And if you went into the city streets, people were really nice to them. They would be helping them to get groceries. You would go to these community centers that were really well-funded. But then if you would go online or talk to people who would go online, it was just completely flipped. And it was just this racist hatred and vitriol. And I thought what was so striking about that is it was a reminder of, despite what Mark Zuckerberg might say, the platforms are not actually neutral shows of what is already in the community. Or maybe it picks out something that is is there, but it's kind of small and it's on the fringes and it blasts it out and widens it out because online social norms that say refugees are great and we accept them is not going to win that mm -hmm. much engagement. But mm -hmm. something that says you have something to fear in your community, these new neighbors are really scary and you should be really upset about them. It's going to surface every time. Sure, and pages. that's not just opinion because it was being fueled by fake news stories about you know sure. rapes and crimes right, and right. all that kind of stuff that right. actually wasn't factually correct. Right, yes, it was a lot of misinformation that would go viral because it would kind of hook in to the sense of right. fear and the sense of identity threat and it would lead to um, violence. There were a, mm -hmm. a few cases that I talk about in the book of people who were fine and then would start spending a lot of time online, maybe weren't even political and would start to drift towards these ideas because they felt online like it's the norm and it's accepted and this is how everybody feels. And they're doing, they're serving the greater good because they're solving right. this problem on behalf of community. everybody, which right. goes to gr that group identity piece. And, you know, suddenly having a purpose, uh, you know, some meaning in your life to right. redress what they legitimately feel to be a harm. Right, it's, it's actualizing, um, it gives you an identity, something to hold on to. And if you talk to people who kind of fall down that, they're often legitimately surprised that the, their real, actual real life community is not gonna greet them as champions and heroes for what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And when you become so invested in that, it becomes very difficult to disabuse people right. of it, no matter what facts you put in front of them. Right. Like you see this with QAnon, there's still people holding on to this idea, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, right. With QAnon, it's sad because it's, um, I mean, for a lot of reasons, obviously, but a lot of them really are just lonely. Um, well, that was the big piece there was the community piece and exactly. the gamification right. of all of it that right. made it this mass group, you know, activity where they mm -hmm. could get together and try to solve these puzzles. Right, 
right? It gives you a purpose, it helps you make sense of the world and it helps you understand if something bad had happened to you. Maybe you've lost your home, you've been displaced, you're alienated from a family member. It's all part of this larger struggle where you can find all of these other people mm. to help you with it. But it, it started with, this is the, the, like the one, I tried not to hold back any reporting for the book, but there was one thing that I just didn't get a chance to put into an article that I put into the book, which is that the origins of QAnon is the, of course is the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, which is, um, and again, it sounds so crazy when you say it out loud, it's the idea that democratic elites are harvesting the blood and the organs of children. Mm -hmm. It sounds so stupid. Um, Adrenochrome. Adrenochrome, right, yeah. yeah, exactly. And that was something that had, that rumor had actually spread spontaneously in about a half dozen different countries before it ever came to the United States as Pizzagate. And I had like just coincidentally, I was reporting on social media extremism in Indonesia, which is this giant Southeast Asian country where social media is a very powerful force. And this rumor that was like identical to Pizzagate had spread there before it came to the US. It had started out on this like very obscure account where someone just, I'm sure just made up this rumor that like, oh, the elites are coming to steal our kids and our baby's bloods and organ, organs, excuse me. And the Facebook algorithm just identified it as something that was going to be tenaciously powerful and started spreading it, went viral on the platform. So other people picked it up and started sharing it. And within a couple of weeks of this, uh, seven different villages in different parts of the country all rose up in spontaneous mob violence and lynched some guy who just happened to be traveling through Whoa. all at the same time, which I had never heard of anything like that happening and before. And there's no link or shared DNA with the Pizzagate origin story. This just happened completely independently. That is kind of what's crazy about wow. it is it's this, it popped up there, it popped up in Mexico, popped up in Guatemala. Um, I think it was a similar version in Nigeria. So there's something about this specific conspiracy that just- Locks into people. Locks into people, yeah. And these, algorithms which are really smart and because they have the largest data sets in human history of what will tap into our minds and impulses and what mm -hmm. won't, it had just figured out that this is something that is gonna spread and spread at one time after another until it became QAnon. Well, there was also a gamification of the Pizzagate thing because it involved this dump of emails, right? That right, then right. ended up on 4chan and all right. these 4chan sleuths are going through them and, right. and you know, kind of coming up with coded messages from, you know, about what means what and right. anagrams and all that kind of stuff that led to this, you know, grander theory that, you know, gets played out when that guy actually shows up at Comet ping pong, what's it called? Comet ping, Comet pong, ping pong pizza yeah, a you know, with his AR-15 and right. what went down, went down. You know, he, he bursts into the, what he thinks is gonna be the door to the basement to discover that it's a closet right. after what, all. I, I, the, what is, always blows my mind about the way that story ends is he, he, knock, he shoots into the closet, which he thinks is the, the pizza gate, you know, child harvesting dungeon. Turns out it's a computer room. And so he just puts down his gun and surrenders. That's it. Mm -hmm. He just, he knows that it has led nowhere, but the conspiracy is still out there and still spreading, even though he has kind of realized that there's nothing actually to it. Right. And the platforms, of course, could not care less. Right. All right, so we have a sense of the problem, right? In your, in your reporting on this and all the work and 
that you've done and the people that you've spoken to, what, what is the thing that, is, that, that most shocked you or surprised you about the extent of this problem? The thing that most shocked me, I think it was honestly learning that using the platforms, it was what we talked about, using the platforms influences your own sense of right and wrong even when you're not on them. And it was this sense that it's, it's not just the Pizzagate guy, it's not just the QAnon people, that it's all of us who are being distorted by it. And when I started to learn about that, I you know, really scaled back my social media usage. I turned off a lot of the features and I really felt a change. I felt mm. a change in um, my mood. I felt a change in how I think about politics and the news that happens. If I don't read it through social media, if I just read it through, uh, you know, regular old websites or podcasts. And I think that maybe that just shook me the most because it implicated me. Um, yeah. You know, probably objectively, I should be most upset about the fact that uh, Facebook played a major role in a, a genocide that expelled a huge population of Myanmar from the country. But it, it's hard not to come out of this thinking that I was affected too without realizing it. And that if that is true for billions of people, including like 80% of Americans, then the effect must be pretty profound. Yeah, this mass unprecedented experiment that is being performed on all of us right. in real time right? without precedent. I mean, it almost, it's, I'm, I'm gonna sound like that guy from Dr. Strangelove. It's almost this like pulp B sci-fi movie where they're putting drugs in the water and nobody realizes it and we're all taking it without mm -hmm. realizing it. I mean, that's more true than not. Right. You know, right. So when we try to understand what the possible solution to this is, it, it, it qu very quickly becomes incredibly complex and, yeah. and tricky. And it, and it seems to my mind that this battle is being fought on several fronts. On the one mm -hmm. hand, we have this argument about free speech, right? Sure. Yeah. Free speech being a core fundamental premise of all of these platforms that that you track all the way back to the inception of Silicon Valley and the sensibility right. of these founders and these engineers. So we have the free speech piece. We have this piece about how we, everything can be solved through engineering, right. which brings up the algorithm. We just need right. a better algorithm right. to solve this. And then the third piece to my mind is the reluctance of the people who are running these companies to at least publicly acknowledge the problem or the extent of the problem and to get into action in terms of solving it. Right, it's tough. It's really tough when you think about the corporate incentives because at some point you're, it's like asking cigarette companies to They're antithetical to, to each other, yeah. Right, right. And it just, the, the way that our system and our economy works is you're asking these giant companies or we're asking these giant companies to disavow the thing that makes the money to say that, not only are cigarettes addictive, but you shouldn't smoke them. Or, mm -hmm. you know, not only is pumping oil bad for the environment, but in fact, we should probably, you know, radically downgrade the amount of energy that we use. This is a question of, I think it, it's more helpful to think about where you want to end up and then try to figure out how you get there than the other way around. Because when you, try to, when you start with how do we get there, it's easy to say, well, we'll just tweak the algorithm. That was the solution after the 2016 election is they said, well, we'll get, better engineers to come in and have even more sophisticated algorithms, which of course just made the problem fundamentally worse. And I would ask people who study this, including a lot of people who are still in Silicon Valley and are true believers, what is, what's the place that we should try to aim for to end up? It would always be 
some version of turn it off, not turn off the entire thing because social media does provide a lot of good that we don't want to give up, but turn off the engagement maximizing features, turn off algorithms, mm -hmm. turn off the, uh, even Jack Dorsey, the former head of Twitter, he for a while was saying maybe having a little light counter at the bottom of a tweet is inc incredibly destructive to our society and politics and maybe we should turn that off. Yeah, and there was and the later, I mean, he was kind of late to come around, but in the final he? stages of his tenure and yeah. the twilight of his reign, right. He had some real epiphanies that ultimately were not made real. Right. 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 And there was there was a period where he was pushing against the financial incentives mm -hmm. of his own company and all the other companies were growing by leaps and bounds and his wasn't because he was kind of constraining its growth because he thought that it wasn't healthy. There is a version of social media that like any platform of any kind can have some negative effects to it, but the the pre 2008, 2006, pre-newsfeed, pre-likes, social media, it didn't have a lot of these harms. Uh, and it was something that contained a lot of the good that we hope for and like and appreciate from social media without these distorting effects mm -hmm. um, and without this kind of addictiveness and the changes to our behavior because they didn't have engagement maximizing features. So it's, it's perfectly possible to have that. Then it just becomes a question of how do you actually bring that about? Yeah, I mean, on the incentives piece, to my mind, the genie's out of the bottle yeah. and the incentives are driven by engagement and the purpose of the engagement is ad revenue, right? right? So it's an ad supported model. Right. And this is yeah. predominantly the reason that these platforms are built the way that they right. are built, yeah. right? So one solution without eradicating capitalism altogether, right? <laughs> Which is, you know, if we have a revolution and we become, sure. you yeah. know, our, our government gets overthrown, that okay. would change things, of course. But um, <laughs> assuming that that's not happening, well, who knows? I mean, you, you, maybe we are on the uh, maybe. tip of probably be civil that, war revolution, I don't know. But be two episodes of yeah. we're gonna abolish capitalism <laughs> too. <laughs> right. But one thing that could accomplish this would be to, sidestep the ad model and go to a subscription model. Like if Twitter became subscription only and everybody right. had to pay two bucks or nine right. bucks or whatever it is, yeah. that would have a revolutionary impact on it. I mean, Sam Harris had said that, you know, Jack Dorsey would have won the Nobel Peace Prize if when he stepped, he just turned <laughs> off the switch, right? Like that's probably not gonna happen, but I'm not the first to suggest that a subscription model would be, mm -hmm. uh, would create a healthier ecosystem. Yeah, I think right? that's right. And I, I myself have switched from, in the media companies that I've worked for from one that was primarily advertising driven to one that was subscription driven. And it's it's not the same scale. And also there is, you know, a lot of human input on media mm -hmm. in the way that there's not with social media, but I felt the difference in incentives for sure. sure. When you're just trying to say, I wanna provide a product that people will find meaningful enough to hit subscribe every month rather than how can I hook as many people for as right. long as possible. And, and it doesn't mean that you have to eradicate the algorithm because when you look yeah. at, like look at Netflix, Sure. Netflix yeah. is totally algorithm driven, right. yeah. but I don't feel like I'm being, you know, manipulate. Like right. I feel like when I watch certain things, then that algorithm does a pretty good job of showing me what right. I might like to watch next. And the reason for that algorithm is to drive up my engagement. Like right. obviously they wanna keep me on Netflix for as long as possible, but it doesn't have the same pull. Like I feel like I'm being, maybe I'm being manipulated and I, I don't know what I'm sure I am, sure, right? right? But it doesn't feel pernicious in the way that the other platforms do because it is a subscription model and right. it's not trying to, you know, I don't feel like it's, I, 
I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like, is it is it trying to radicalize me? And I don't know, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, but it just, it feels a little bit more yeah. benign. Than no, I, I agree. Being on Facebook I agree. I mean, it's, I think that it's a, it's a difference in, if they were really just trying to maximize your watch time, they would be showing you softcore porn and car wrecks all the time. Cause right. that's the thing that would keep you watching for long periods of time, but they're not. They're trying to show you the gray man, mm-hmm. which is, also not great, but for different reasons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, is that that? That's that Ryan Gosling movie that was terrible. Right? Yeah, yeah, I was. I had such high hopes for him. He'll come back. <laughs> yeah, that was bad. Yeah, he's got another Damien Chazelle movie. We'll uh-huh. be okay. But um, it's Spotify is the same way, where they mm-hmm. ultimately where they would what they want is for you to be happy with the experience, and it's a very powerful, very sophisticated algorithm that is trying to make you happy with having a subscription to Spotify which they can achieve things other than trying to make you addicted and listen to many, many hours of content. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the free speech piece. Sure. Then. Yeah. So with this, I mean, obviously this is the debate that's raging across all of these platforms. Right. Like what are the parameters of free speech? How much free speech should be allowed? Right. And with the maturation of these platforms, We've seen a grappling with this issue in real time sure. and, and some legitimate movement from free speech absolutism mm-hmm. to recognizing that that's not gonna work. Right. Look at 4chan, look at 8chan, see what happens right. when you completely shirk any responsibility for right. managing that to a real conundrum around what we should accept, what we shouldn't, and mm-hmm. the differences between the platforms and how that's managed. Right. So there's you you alluded to this but the free speech absolutism has this kind of founding ideal in Silicon Valley that if you completely remove the gatekeepers, you completely remove the rules which you should do because ideas should be completely free, then the best ideas will naturally surface. And this is actually mm-hmm. something that comes very specifically out of engineering where it's just whoever makes the best widget, they should be in charge of making the widget, which makes perfect sense when you're making a semiconductor. But it has never worked that way because what it always favors is first of all, raw majoritarianism, which we have learned can be a very destructive force, especially on these early social platforms like 4chan and Reddit, but also that the best idea is not going to be the most engaging idea. Mm-hmm. And so those, this is why we've seen over and over that pure free speech leads to very intense and extreme version of majoritarianism. There's still sorry, a question. Sorry to interrupt, but like no, just a thought, uh, if, if that premise was true, right. then in the Reddit ecosystem, for example, where you're upvoting yeah. the best comments, right that it would follow that the most insightful, most intelligent right. comment would always be the most upvoted. Right, and go we on know Reddit that's not the I, case. Yeah, I defy you too. Yeah. And what's ironic is that Reddit has actually gotten much better and the quality mm-hmm. of the discussions and the content on there has improved drastically because they imposed gatekeepers and because they have people who work very hard at moderating the conversations, which, which is what we do in the real world, mm-hmm. is we have a sense of norms that we enforce formally and informally to try to encourage what we think is gonna be a constructive conversation. So even but, Reddit, the your free speech right. has come around to this. But the story that you tell around the CEO, what was her name, Powell? Ellen Powell. Powell, yeah, yeah like yeah. her story was pretty illustrative as being kind of at the forefront of that. Right debate and how she got she kind of got churned out. Right, yeah, she was someone who earlier than most of us, certainly earlier than I did, 
saw where that raw majoritarianism was going. And she saw it partly because she's a, a woman of color in an industry that at that point, especially, and still is overwhelmingly white and male. Mm-hmm. She also saw it because she'd been an investor at Kleiner Perkins, this huge tech investment firm, and it had this discrimination lawsuit against them that had uh, made her more thoughtful about the ways that the Valley is not welcoming to people who are outside of the Valley's mm-hmm. majority. And she did try, sometimes haltingly, sometimes very bravely, to uh, change the way fundamentally that the platform and the technology worked to privilege healthy conversation over lots and lots of engagement. Like we talked about super posters. She actually identified the super posters on Reddit who were posting, yeah, mm-hmm. toxic stuff. And yeah. she got rid of them. It was like, I forget the number, it was very small. It was like a couple thousand users out of millions. And it was this incredible change where there's a study that had some academics conducted and they found that the amount of hate speech overall on the site dropped substantially. It was like 80%, I think. Was it 80%? Something like that. It was a crazy statistic. It's a a really high number, yeah. Yeah. Which just goes to show the power that these platforms have to tilt an entire Mm -hmm. community one way or another, even if we don't. But she got excoriated for it and ultimately fired. She did. She was lambasted as uh, destroying free speech. She was a big target of um, the movement that at that point was kind of burgeoning Gamergate, was harassed pretty severely and in ways that were very sexist and racist on the platform. And for that and other reasons was quickly pushed out of Reddit. Mm -hmm. So that was an early experiment that kind of went sideways, right? But but, you know, kind of a canary in the coal mine. Yes. right? Right. So here we are and we still have the Zuckerbergs out in front saying, listen, we're not in the business of policing speech. We may find this speech to be deplorable, mm-hmm. but you know, we're not, you know, these platforms are not about moderating right. that or quality control on speech. Right. And yet they've been forced to reckon with this because right. of the violence that we've seen play right. out, which puts us in this really weird murky place where moderation being an imperfect science, whether it's human driven or AI driven is going to have scattershot results that are gonna ultimately make nobody happy. Everybody's mad, right? right? Right. I'm being shadow banned, I'm being downvoted. I post, nobody sees it. It's a conspiracy of the left to suppress conservative voices, vice versa. All of this we're seeing, you know, being discussed, you know, ad nauseum online. Nobody seems to have a good grasp on how to truly solve the problem. Sure. Meanwhile, we're kind of spinning out of control without any real solution right. in our in our sights. Right. And the the where you draw the parameters of speech, acceptable speech, unacceptable speech is in some ways an unsolvable problem. And it's one that we have been continuously litigating in this society and in every society for as long as we've had social norms and a society. It's also, I think, in some ways, it's a little bit of a it's a red herring that the Silicon Valley companies actually really like to draw attention to because it's sympathetic and because when you isolate it, it's like, well, should this be allowed or should this be allowed? Or is this post okay, is that post okay? Mm -hmm. The problem is not which posts are allowed and not allowed. And this is something Rene DiResta has really emphasized. It's what gets promoted and it's what gets amplified. And if you had platforms that did not so reliably and consistently amplify the things that were so harmful and so distorting, the free speech question just becomes a lot lower stakes. The potential damage of making the wrong decision one way or another becomes a lot less dangerous because if you leave something up, if you leave up a piece of hate speech that's getting 
engagement from three people, then mm-hmm. it's not good for those three people who saw it, but it's ultimately not gonna be You may dangerous. be crying uh, fire in a theater, but there's nobody in the theater to hear you. That's a great way to put it, mm-hmm. actually. I like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's such an interesting thing, like this idea of, of the obligations of the platform. I mean, free speech has to do with government regulation of speech, not- and social regulation. Yeah, social regulation defined how? So if I were to use a racial slur on your podcast, which I'm, I'm not gonna do, um, that's not illegal, but I would face, and you would probably face social consequences Oh, sure, for that. okay, I understand what you mean. Right, yeah. and then, so that's this idea of social sanction, the way that we informally mm-hmm. police one another's behavior and social norms in ways that are not necessarily illegal. You know, someone cuts you in line for the bus and you kind of tut-tut them, that's social sanctions. Or if someone, one of your friends has, uh, joins a political group that you think is damaging for society and you say, well, I'm not gonna be your friend or I'm gonna distance myself from you to punish you for that, that's social sanction. So it's this form of informal regulation that we all participate in and it, it's messy and it's imperfect and it gets stuff wrong. But because it's something that we evolved in over millions of years, we're, we're reasonably good at it. And that is something that you see on platforms that don't have these distorting algorithms, that don't have these engagement maximizing features, is they don't, they don't naturally reset to a naturally healthy discourse. But you know, like this kind of more recent Reddit, after they've done a lot of work on this, if you can think thoughtfully about how you have responsible gatekeepers on the platform, how you can have your, your social reference, your super posters be people who are setting positive norms instead of negative norms, then the question of what do the moderators have to remove? Mm-hmm. That also becomes a lot lower stakes because it's the community that is doing a lot of the enforcement in terms of if someone says something terrible on a platform that's not Facebook that is more legitimately neutral, then the other people on the platform will say, well, you know, you shouldn't say that because that's a hateful thing to say. Right, right. I mean, that a related matter to that is the impact that that socialization of speech can have mm-hmm. on somebody who transgresses it, right? So sure. this is the Justine Sacco example yes, of, right, so you've been right. publicly shamed, like right, the people right, right. who misstep, sometimes with intent, sometimes without intent, who then suffer a disproportionate amount of, right. you know, alienation and outgroup uh, right. dissonance, right. You know, or even outward hate right. as a result. Right. And this is something that is created by a social dynamic. It's not driven by the guideposts of the, the platforms themselves, but ultimately is having a real pernicious effect mm-hmm. culturally. Mm-hmm. And I think a chilling effect on you know, people feeling like they should even say anything. Like, what is, why should I? Like, if I'm gonna suffer this kind of consequence, who wants to go through that? Like, I mean, nobody does, it's terrible. And that deep sense of being cast out of the tribe is a very primal, painful thing that you talk about in the book. Like- Physically painful. You experience it as physical pain. Right, because we evolved in an environment where you can't, you literally cannot survive without the approval and support of your community. That's, you know, tribes of like 100, 150 people that we evolved in where this was something that was, you really needed to maintain. And if you lost it, if you upset the rest of your tribe, it would, could often be fatal. So that is why when we, 
if you're online and you're getting yelled at by 200 people, it feels really, really bad because your brain has evolved to experiencing that as a mortal threat akin to, you know, mm-hmm. being stabbed with a spear, akin to losing access to food. But because of the way that social media works, it if you do something transgressive in real life, maybe eight people who see it will say, you shouldn't do that. And they'll kind of modulate their voice based on what they think is appropriate based on your transgression. If you do it online, it might be 2000 people or it might be 20,000 mm-hmm. people who get really mad at you. Probably not 20,000, but it'll be a really large number. Or and you're caught on video and then it goes viral in millions of people. Right, yeah. Right, which yeah. it's sometimes it's a real transgression and sometimes it is not a real transgression because these things move so quickly on social media and the incentives for each individual user are to participate because participating in a pylon on someone, uh, it feels really good. It's, it is physically pleasurable to do. And it is something that you feel an urge to do because you know it will win you the approval of your community to say, you know, I'm one of the good ones too. I share this sense of morality and I share this sense of moral outrage against this transgressor. And sometimes that can be productive. Um, I mean, I talk about this Central Park right. incident from summer the 2020. watching guy and the dog walker. Yeah, the dog walker, this uh, woman who she had, I'm sure people remember it, she had her dog off. There was a, a black guy who was a bird watcher who said, please leash your dog and she, called the police and pretended to be in mortal danger, which at that mm-hmm. particular moment was something that she knew carried the threat of the police coming and killing this guy basically to, for you know the sin of asking her to leash her dog. And that is something that pre-social media would not have gotten punished and therefore is activity that would have been allowed to perpetuate that's, that's dangerous and bad. And social media allowed for the social sanctioning of that in a way that would not have been possible before at a huge scale that sent a message, not just to this woman, but to other people who might be seeing it and who might be one day tempted to do something similar that you shouldn't do this because you will pay a social cost for it. Mm -hmm. So that's good. Right, weaponizing your privilege to sick the police on somebody who actually didn't do you any harm or or, or Or wrong. What I I didn't know about that, I mean, obviously I remember that when that happened. Um, What I didn't realize was that the gentleman um, who, the bird watcher, I Christian Cooper. Name. They were both called Cooper. Yeah, and him, right. Um, he he didn't even want to make a thing about it. It was yeah. his sister who shared right. the video. Right. Yeah, she shared it, and he. It was funny reading interviews with him about it after the fact, where he would say, you know, what she did. This woman, Amy Cooper, was bad, and she was trying to unleash certain dark forces. But he said, I don't know that her life needed to be mm-hmm. destroyed over this because the 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 punishment that got meted out was just determined by the raw group dynamics of the platforms. Where well, it was the, also timing because it happened. Yeah, to that's true. Right. Coincide with you know the kind of outset of Black Lives Matter and right. all of that. So right. it was a flashpoint. It was like yeah, a perfect point, storm right. of events. Right. People that met mad. the criteria for what people were interested in talking about. Right, interested in talking about, had legitimate real anger that they wanted to express. It just happened at the scale where, you know, she gave up her dog mm-hmm. at one point, the shelter that she had adopted it from. It's unclear exactly how, like recalled the dog from her um, to the point where even her victim was saying, this seems like a little bit much, was a striking example to me because I think I think we're all vaguely aware, but it's it's tough to articulate sometimes that even when this online social sanction is towards something that is deserving and might be used towards ends that are helpful 
for a society that it, it quickly, quickly can run out of control because the scale and the incentives of the platform just tilt towards these extremes and because it's something that happens a lot to people who don't deserve it. Mm -hmm. But they were caught in a photo or in a video in a way that it looked like something bad was happening or they were maliciously portrayed in a certain way as having right, done like something. Right, like the Sandy Hook parents right. in the yeah. Alex Jones example. Right. Um, and then you tell the story of Cecil the lion, which was another <laughs> big one, right? With the dentist who, you know, I mean, that was a whole quagmire. That was- Shit show. It was, it was both, I would, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That would to me felt like, I think looking back, I think that was the tipping point. I think that was the last, in my mind, that was the last moment when it felt like just the internet. And that was, um, if people don't remember, if you were online at the time, it was a really big thing. I think it was early 2016, late mm -hmm. 2015. A, an American guy, a dentist from I think St. Louis was in Zimbabwe, he was a big game hunter. And he shot a lion under circumstances that were in a legal, gray area, uh, but in a, near a park where it is legal to shoot lions. Right, and the lion had been lured out of the perimeter of the park where it was legal. Exactly. He was also a beloved lion who had a name and right. you know, there were a lot of people. And, and listen, you know, a big game hunter is the least sympathetic person right. you're gonna come across. Yeah, right, right. It's hard. And it's why hard are they always say. dentists? Why are <laughs> dentists always the big game hunter guys? Dentists are more, it's also the, always the dentist down at Mar-a-Lago. I think this oh, is the, the kind of the yeah. secret like swing vote in America. <laughs> American life. <laughs> Next time you're at your dentist, have a talk mm -hmm. with them and say, you know, are you doing okay? Right. So yeah, so this guy, this dentist shoots a lion. Uh, right. This goes crazy viral on the internet. He has to go into hiding basically. Yes, he has to, um, as, as the kind of, outrage cycles grow and grow and grow first on Reddit and then on Twitter and then on YouTube. I think and I Facebook. probably retweeted or reshared something about that. I think at we the all time. did. Because it, I mean, it's when you're one it individual. It is outrageous. It is, anyway, I, right, it is, no, I agree. Yeah. It is outrageous. And when you're one individual, what could be the harm of calling out something that is outrageous and saying that that's what it is? Mm -hmm. um, it's a kind of collective action problem because for any one individual person, I mean, except for the people who took it to physical threats, I would argue, it makes perfect sense and is maybe even the moral thing to do. But when it gets amplified through these platforms and at this insane scale of millions of people, it becomes distorting, I think out of out of scale with what he actually deserved because he he and his family have to flee their home. His dentistry practice has to shut down, which means the people he employ are out of work. Um, he was in hiding for weeks because there were people who were spray painting his home. There were people who were threatening to kill him. It was this like national hysteria, like Jimmy Kimmel cried on air over the lion, which it, it's not to say that it's not sad, but it felt to me, and especially feels looking back like this moment when the moral outrage of the internet and the moral outrage incentives of the internet, because how many of these people really cared about Cecil the Lion before this happened? Like, like zero, right? is something that can be so infectious and it can spread to this insane scale that have these consequences that are first of all, beyond what anything is planning. Cause there's no central arbiter saying, you know, this dentist deserves this punishment, this punishment, but not that punishment. Mm -hmm. It's just happening through collective action, but also because we're all complicit in it. So no one wants to say, maybe we shouldn't threaten to kill this dentist, uh, which I think is partly why that incident has been kind of forgotten. Uh, I mean, the New York Times ran like 10 articles about it. Yeah, and, and for every story like Cecil or the bird watcher, there's a million other ones, right? So right. here we have this problem. 
Um, this problem's not going away. The weaponization of speech, yeah. the policing of speech, right. the mob unleashed, the doxing. You know, there's there's clear cases where we can all maybe not all of us, but like reasonable minds would say, this is probably not Too good. Far. We should, sure. yeah. yeah. But where do we draw that line? And once you get into drawing those lines, it becomes right. infinitely problematic. Right. So this is, the, this is the problem that all of these founders are grappling with. This is the problem that we're grappling with as a society. Mm-hmm. I don't see it getting any easier to solve. Like, yeah. where do you come down in terms of your thoughts on, on the best way to manage and rectify what is wildly spinning out of control. I think that it's, um, I think it starts with asking a slightly different question or kind of reframing the question in our minds. Um, the kind of the version of the question of, you know, what's the amount of outrage that we allow or what are the posts that we allow or don't allow? It's a little bit like thinking, where do we put all of this toxic sludge that's coming out of this factory that's in our backyard? Should we put it in drums or should we put it mm-hmm. in, you know, plastic containers or should we go dump them in the bay? Right, yeah, or go dump it in the bay. And um, I, another way to think about it is, should the factory be producing this much toxic sludge? Is there a way that we can maybe just dial things back in the factory so that it is not polluting our homes? And I think that those questions get a lot easier to solve when you think of it less in terms of how do we manage the outputs of the system and more in terms of how do we get the system to stop pumping out the sludge and that's partly a high level regulatory question, which mm-hmm. there's more movement on than you might think. Um, there's, a, there's a real chance that some of these platforms might get kicked out of big parts of the EU. And that's something that could really happen. Wow, um, what gives you that sense? The regulators there um, have imposed some pretty strict fines. Uh, the social attitudes towards the platform are a little bit different, especially in Germany, which is a big deciding vote in a lot of EU matters. There is really a sense that this is like this foreign thing that has come into our country is polluting it. So it feels easier to kind of say, we should just get rid of it. But I think if it if it does happen, the way it would happen would be imposing rules that are impossible for the platforms to follow without fundamentally changing their nature. And you've already started to see the start of this where um, there's these German laws that Facebook is legally culpable for certain kinds of speech if they don't preemptively mm-hmm. remove it, which is not possible under their current model where the posts go out and they review it after the fact. And then I think the choice will be this kind of game of chicken where the EU will say, well, you can stay, but you have to completely re-engineer your platforms to meet the standards that we set. And then these companies will say, well, you know, Europe is a shrinking market for us anyway, which is true because adoption rates are going down and um, population rates in Europe are pretty static or declining and our future is in the developing world. So we'll see you later. Right, but that would also set up a sort of cold war domino thing, right? Yeah. Like if Europe sure. falls, what's next? They've set a precedent, you know, my mind goes towards what happens when every country sets up different laws and regulations and rules around how these entities can operate in their territory, which becomes impossible because these are global entities, right? Right. So how are they gonna, you know, sort of uh, partition how they're managing it based upon, you know, geographical boundaries. Right, and the companies have started to get pretty aggressive about fighting back. Do you remember this thing in Australia? I think it was about a year ago 
the Australian government was setting these new rules. Oh God, what was it? Oh, it was Facebook had to, Facebook and Google both had to sign agreements with major Australian media companies to basically say, we Facebook or we Google Mm -hmm. will give you a portion of ad revenue because we are selling ads against your content. Right, which was, there are differing views on whether or not that was a good law. It was promoted very heavily by News Corp, which is a a major Mm -hmm. media presence there. But Facebook's response, Google said, okay, we'll do it. And they cut deals with media companies to pay them a bunch of money for the rights to host their content. Facebook said, okay, we won't host any news. And they Mm -hmm. just flipped the switch, which blew my mind for a couple of reasons. And one was that I remember very clearly three years before that, in the middle of the genocide in Myanmar, when the United Nations is screaming their heads off to say, Facebook, you are driving actively this ongoing genocide and Facebook refused to turn off the platform. They were getting asked by journalists, just please, would you consider switching it off? And they said, no, we won't do it. Mm -hmm. But when someone targeted their ad revenue in Australia, all of a sudden it's lights off. and it had a real impact on the country because these platforms have been so successful at dominating how people consume news and get information. All of these like domestic abuse groups that were based on Facebook, uh, like weather groups couldn't get information out. And there are other websites that people could obviously access to get the news. But of course, once news publishers were blocked in Australia, what filled in the void for people on there who wanted to learn what was going on in the world, but rumor and misinformation. Sure. And so it was a, um, I think a a telling blow that there, or a telling incident that there are gonna be more fights like this between governments and the major companies, yeah. which we don't experience here as much because it, it's like unthinkable. How could we shut down our own, you know, three or four largest companies in the country? But in other countries, it's a much more live mm-hmm. question. It was interesting how Facebook got its hold in some of these developing countries, right? Where mm-hmm. you describe the, you know, distribution of of low cost mobile mm-hmm. devices right. that were pre you know pre programmed with with a rudimentary Facebook app already right. built into them, and deals that Facebook struck with cell providers to basically give them free data plans for a period of time, and so that that basically you know created a situation where their only way of communicating with each other right. and and for purposes of how they're sourcing their information and news was through Facebook right which they the presented beginning. at the time as this great gift to the world that we're going to go out and pay for cell phone internet data it's like the drug dealer giving you the freebie exactly yeah. right and if you look at the way that they would talk about it internally it was all about owning the market it's all about and this is what they did in Myanmar. So people have cell phones for the first time. People have internet for the first time. We're going to make sure that they 100% access the internet through Facebook so that when this market matures and becomes worth something. They're already so inured to it. That, right, yeah. and they're completely addicted and we control it. And what that, one of the many things that means is that local publishers, like let's say a newspaper or a media company can't possibly compete mm-hmm. because it's free. How can you compete with free and how can you compete with also it's on your phone and it's so shiny. And the displacement that happened was just devastating to a lot of reporters, a lot of media companies, a lot of publishers in these countries. And if you talk to people in these countries, they think that Facebook is the internet. That little that little F mm-hmm. button and what it pulls up, they think that's what the internet is. So there is really not as much of a 
standard or a practice of, well, you have your Facebook, but you also go load up the Myanmar Times website, or you also go load up these other eight ways you load up your Gmail account to go email with people. It's all through these one or two companies that control all the information and discussion, which is kind of nuts. It's really about what sacrifices we're willing to make for the sake of convenience, right? So when those phones come preloaded with Facebook, you can probably go out and get other apps. You're free to do what you want with that. But when it's so convenient, that's gonna create habit formation around that. So in example, and this is playing out for all of us. Like I had an experience just the other day. I went for the first time into an Amazon Fresh. Have you had this experience? I've, I've been into them once, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I mean, for people that don't know, like, okay, pull out your Amazon app on your right. phone and, and hit the in-store locator thing. It pulls up a QR code right. and, and you walk into the place and you scan the QR code mm-hmm. and then you just go and put whatever you want in the bag and That's then right. you leave and yeah. there's can- <laughs> and then you look up at this, there's a scaffolding just like we have up here in the yeah. studio right. and there's so many cameras yeah. that are looking at you. Right. There is nothing, I mean, if you, you know, pulled a no, a hair out of your nose, it would notice it, right? Like, and, right. and I had this strange sense of like, I am being so hyper watched right now. And you consented to it. You chose that. I chose it. This yeah. is the point that I'm trying to make. So right. I went in, I was like, I wanna see what this is like. I went right. in and then I did it. And it is weird to like, okay, I can leave now. Like I think there's that Saturday <laughs> Night Live skit where uh, Keenan, what's his name? Keenan uh, Thompson. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He do, he's like there and he's, it's like, he thinks he's gonna get arrested because he's black. <laughs> he's like, no, you can leave. Like, I was like, am I, what is happening, right? Yeah. And I thought that is incredible. It's so unbelievably convenient, but right. am I comfortable with that? Like, right. I don't know. And I keep thinking about it. Like, this is something that's, that, that is at the, that's like it, right at that friction point of right. like convenience and the sacrifice right. of privacy. Of course, Amazon is collecting the information about what I bought and is then gonna use that data to serve up whatever it's gonna serve up to me. Yeah, you're all a pawn in this greater thing, right? And that is when I have heard, I'm generally skeptical of arguments that breaking up the companies will improve things because it, it does nothing to change the underlying business model of maximizing engagement to sell ads. But one of the versions of the argument for breaking up the companies that I have heard that does make I think some logical sense is that their enormous market power, just the the billions and billions of dollars they have and the fact that they control all of these different aspects of how we relate to the outside world and engage with the world around us makes it very easy for them to introduce something like this, Mm -hmm. to say, well, now there's a store everywhere and it's in every community and there's all these cameras and you normally would never say yes to it, but we're gonna make it so easy and maybe we're gonna give you a little bit of a discount for going there. So eventually you're going to acclimate to it. And that is something, I mean, it's like Facebook going into Myanmar for free and saying, we're gonna lose money for 20 years so that we can own it for the next hundred. It is interesting. I mean, it it seems like such an an easy lift to say that WhatsApp and Instagram should Mm -hmm. be divorced from Facebook, right? And to me, the fact that the Justice Department or the FTC or the antitrust department of the the Justice Department can't make that case or has not yet made that case. Like Mm -hmm. it feels feckless on my part, you know, from my perspective that they haven't proceeded in the, the antitrust actions that they have gone that, that they have pursued seem like weak versions mm-hmm. of what the real problem is. You mean in terms of changing the underlying mechanics? Yeah, in terms right. Yeah. Ex- yeah, yeah. There is there is this sense where it's 
it's a blunt instrument for what they're trying to do. Um, it's a it's a hammer when maybe you need a scalpel. Um, some of the cases, I, I don't, I'm not a lawyer. It's it's tough for me to say how compelling they are or not. You would know that better than I would. Mm-hmm. Some of them do. At least people tell me that they are proceeding and that they might be a little bit more promising than we think. There's some argument that they work as a deterrent, that it's just, you better stay on our good side or else we're gonna bring down this enforcement action. But right, that's but like, kind of a meanwhile, scary Meanwhile, I mean, come on, look at how these, yeah. they, they continue right. with wild abandon to build right. and, and grow and consolidate. Right. It did look around like 2017, like they were really gonna try to make peace with Washington. And I mm-hmm. actually, as I say that, they really did. And they were actually enormously successful even as Trump and a lot of senior Republicans were railing constantly against the sort of social media companies at cultivating a lot of people in power in Mm -hmm. Washington. But what they were not prepared for was the flip to a democratic administration. Although it's tough for me to say, there's a lot of talk out of this White House and Justice Department that now that we're in power, we're gonna use our four to eight years to do the thing that they managed, that these companies managed to buy a reprieve from in 2016 when they kind of got Trump on their side. Um, I don't know if it's actually gonna happen or not. Yeah. I honestly couldn't say. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like it. If it is gonna happen, it's happening quietly, which may mean right. it's not happening. Yeah. So as we kind of start to round this out, uh, where do you, if things continue on this trajectory, yeah, the way that they're, they've been playing out, like, yeah. What Cabin is the, you know, where, where is this headed? Like, can right. you paint the picture of the near and distant future? So I got, it's, it's hard to say partly because the platforms change a lot. So uh, we don't have a great sense of TikTok's influence mm-hmm. on politics and society. Well, that's a whole other podcast, especially right. with Chinese ownership, et cetera. Exactly. I mean, and the black right. box nature of it all. Right, it's so black box and the, the, dyna- the, the what it, surfaces and doesn't is so different from other platforms that we don't have a great sense for what the implications of that are for users individually or collectively. And there could always be another platform that Mm -hmm. has some entirely different effect. But I will say that I spent a lot of time for this book in Brazil, which is a country that is very similar to the United States in so many ways in, in terms of its politics, its social divisions, its racial divisions, its economic makeup. And felt to me like it is a few years ahead of the United States in terms of social media's influence, which is just as big there as it is here. Mm. And I I profiled several people who were uh, YouTube influencers, basically, who were now in high positions of government. Um, Bolsonaro, the president, he kind of got a start as like a sure. YouTube guy. He was just like this fringe person with very little uh, constituency in the country, but a huge influence on YouTube. And I think the the hints of the future that I got from Brazil are that um, I think the relationship between politics and social media is going to flip. Um, and I think that we are going to see less of social media as a place where some political influence plays out and then feeds into politics from kind of the bottom up in the way that we saw in 2016. And I think that we are going to see more politics driven actively by and mirroring social media in the way that in Brazil, you don't have lawmakers who are trying to appease Facebook. You have people from Facebook who are now in government and Mm. the constituencies that they're serving are the social media algorithms because that's what put them in power in the first place. That's interesting. It's hard to imagine that here though, right now. You think so? I don't know. I, I don't think we're that far from it. I don't think that we're far from 
I mean, in some ways with the like stop the steal candidates and the Republican party who are rising up and some of the QAnon people, like these are already people who came from social media right. into politics. Right, and right, I think right. that that is something that is, we're gonna see more capture of that in the Republican party. I don't know exactly what it would look like in the democratic party. I just can't say, but it would not shock me if we saw a version of that soon enough. Mm. And what does that forebode from your perspective? I mean, when you think about the incentives of political leaders, what are they trying to do? They're trying to get reelected, right? Or they're trying to go from the minority party to the majority party. And those incentives have been changing in American politics for a long time because of the collapse and weakening of the party system because of the way that politics are increasingly nationalized, where you look at your lawmaker as a representative of the president's party now, mm -hmm. instead of as someone who you might have a more personal local relationship with. But I think it, we could be facing a much larger flip where it's not just that politics are nationalized. And if you're running for a house seat in Congress, you're thinking of how do I fit into the national political conversation, but you're thinking, how do I fit into the social media conversation? And that means how do I get the right number of people on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube who are gonna be into what I'm doing? And that's just, it's a different market. It's mm -hmm. a different constituency and it's a different set of interests and incentives than you have in traditional retail politics. Sure, you have to understand the vicissitudes of the algorithm and right. play that game right. to literally game it in your right. favor, which right. means it's gonna push both sides towards the more radical fringes right. of their respective Right. parties and, and views. And, and that's gonna then push the constituents in that direction as well right. until we're so far apart that it doesn't feel like the nation can cohere. Yeah. I mean, this is the dystopian, right. you know, right. end point of this whole thing. Right. And it's, it's like insane to even contemplate that that could be a reality, but yeah. it does feel more and more prescient. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, if that is going to be slowed down, that's a change that I think can't just come from whatever we do with these technology companies. That is something where it's also a symptom of, like you were talking about, one of the symptoms of extremism is people feeling left behind in society. This is also a symptom of our political systems gatekeepers really weakening. Sure. And um, speaking of whole other podcasts, like strengthening the party system and strengthening political gatekeepers is definitely a whole other podcast, but that feels to me like the only way to kind of slow or even start to reverse this trend. Yeah, do you feel like the gatekeepers on Capitol Hill are becoming more educated and savvy about the perniciousness and, and ills of social media? I mean, we've had, you know, famously mm -hmm. there was these hearings, but right. you know, sort of aside from that, there was this sense like these guys don't actually really know what's going on. So I, I remember the, the hearings where some of the questions were like, what's a, what's a Facebook page? Right. How do I post Sir, we sell ads. Right. <laughs> There's right. that right. whole thing. There has actually been, especially mm. in the last like two years and especially after January 6th, I think a, a really impressive education on That's Capitol Hill. It, it really is. And even the member of the house who represents Silicon Valley, which I was kind of blown away by, have really come around to a much more sophisticated understanding of what the roots of the problems are and what pressure points on the company to point to. Uh, I did a story about YouTube's algorithm plucking out 
home movies of little kids in various states mm. of undress that looked innocent on their own, but then stringing them together in a way that was meant to sexualize them and to present them as softcore pornography, basically. And after that came out, um, there were letters from a couple of senators that I was kind of blown away by how on point they were, where they were demanding Google and YouTube change where in the product design process, safety and social impact people would be involved, which is something that you, I wouldn't mm. have even known to ask about, but I ran that by someone and they were like, wow, this is like, they talked to someone maybe probably who left YouTube or left Google. But I think they are starting to see that they need to understand how the companies work and how the companies make decisions and then find little pressure points like this that they can try to bring attention to, to try to steer them in better directions. And how receptive are the powers that be at the YouTubes, Facebooks and Googles oh, to- not. Zero, yeah, right. <laughs> zero receptive. Who's the worst? Um, it depends on how you measure it, but the answer is YouTube. I mean, just everybody who I have talked to if I would ask which is which is the one that is most pernicious in its social impact and which is the company that is most hostile towards social pressures or towards political pressures, no matter who I asked, their answer was always YouTube. Mm. Sorry. Yeah, that's just, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. It's yeah. unfortunate. It doesn't that. mean that of course that everything, I mean, I watch YouTube. It doesn't yeah. mean everything on it is bad and it doesn't mean everybody who works there is bad, uh, but just the way that the company happens to be structured, the way that its systems happen to work, their destructiveness, maybe because their destructiveness is less apparent and has gotten less attention than Facebook. That's the argument some people make is that they've been allowed to skate a little bit in a mm -hmm. way that other platforms haven't. Um, they're segregated out and they're this kind of like moneymaker for Meta and for Google, whereas Facebook is right. you know, the main marquee it's, thing. It's like they, the ATM for Google, right? It's the in ATM many for ways. Google. Yeah. What's interesting is as somebody who's on YouTube and sure. you know we're filming this for YouTube right now, right? right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a constant conversation that we have here about how we position our content on YouTube. Right. Yeah. And of course, I know that if right. we come up with a crazy clickbait title and some well. wacky right. you know, thumbnail, we'll yeah. get more views and I just refuse to do it. Mm -hmm. And yet, and so we suffer the consequences. Right. Like we don't get, you know, the views that I think that our content deserves right. by and large, True. because we're opting out of playing that game. But I need to sleep at night too, right? right? And right. so, yeah. well, maybe we can, so it's a, it's a constant thing of like, can we say that? Like, is right. that okay with you? Right. Or is that, right. you know, and it's like, right. it's not even a conversation I wanna have. Like, I just yeah. wanna put, you know, episode number, blah, 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 mm. Max Fisher. And what's tough is that you can wrestle with it and torture yourself and make the right choice. And someone else is gonna make the wrong one because anybody can put anything on mm -hmm. YouTube. Someone will go the 10 extra steps, be more extreme, be more provocative. And the algorithm will find them even if it's you know someone who is using a $70 camera and microphone. Yeah, but I still call me naive. Max, but I naive. still believe that yeah, you're calling me naive before I've even shared my thought that over the, if you play the long game over the long haul, like ultimately, you know, water rises to its own level. How do you mean? Meaning that if I, like from my perspective, if mm -hmm. I keep just trying to put out the best mm -hmm. conversations that I can right. in the nuanced form that they, you know, often are, that ultimately it will find its audience. Sure, but yeah, that's true, yeah. But it won't happen quickly. Right? It, won't, like it definitely gonna, won't happen as quickly. There's no shortcutting to right. that. 
Yeah. And there's a trust and a faith that comes with that, that right. exists outside of any algorithm. Right. And I mean, you are still finding an audience on YouTube, sure. thanks partly to the algorithm. I mean, yeah, it's, still, it's still helping. And it occasionally, there. you know, like we'll hit a, we've, you know, we've had a couple ones that have hit the algorithm lottery and go right. crazy. Yeah. And then of course you try to reverse engineer right, it. Right, right, you right, right. You're like, I don't know why it, that yeah. happened. Right, yeah. So I talked to but. some political activists who used YouTube and they were, in their view, trying to use it for good, but they wanted to say, well, we need to reach a lot of people because we are trying to, this is in Brazil, we're trying to change politics in a healthier direction. And one of them was telling me that after like six months, they looked up and realized that they had endorsed all these views that they had hated beforehand mm -hmm. because it was just so easy to follow those incentives. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is none of these platforms are all bad and promotion is not inherently bad. So you can still have a really good podcast that reaches you know, a really great audience on YouTube and does it, in terms of the promotion on YouTube, basically for free, which is pretty cool. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that it means that you have to shoulder responsibility for how you use it and right. understanding that you are, that the deck is stacked against you because it's sure. so powerful and addictive. But to the right. extent that you can manage to restrict yourself or to you know, come up with rules that work for you, it can be a positive. I mean, my whole career is yeah. based on the internet. It's on right. YouTube and Instagram and right. all these places. Right. And as a result of Twitter and Instagram, I've been able to connect with an unbelievable number of extraordinary people that have yeah. enriched my life. So it isn't a black or white thing, but That's I think true. it is, you know, it is just more important than ever for people to realize how powerful it is. And as your book so beautifully illustrates, it is changing our behavior, whether we like it or not, or how mm -hmm. resistant we are to that idea because it, it's an assault on our agency and sentience yeah. and all of that, this is happening. And so please, you know, reevaluate your relationship with these platforms and maybe you can kind of end this. You already alluded to how you've made some behavioral modifications, but leave us with, you know, some poignant thoughts on just how powerful it is and maybe some other ways in which we can mm -hmm. modulate or think about our information diet and the extent to which these platforms are useful or not. I think that you hit the nail on the head. I think that's the dilemma that you described is the dilemma, a microcosm. It's like of the food addiction, all... you still have to eat, right? <laughs> right. So yes. nobody's gonna be, we're right. not asking you to be a Luddite. I'm not right. gonna be a Luddite. Right. No, I don't, I don't, you know, I sometimes will hear people say, throw away your smartphone and you can't throw away your mm -hmm. smartphone. That's you these... can be like Johan and go to Fire Island for <laughs> a summer, but you know, ultimately I mean, I he's back on too. the phone. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> um, we, we live in a world that is dominated by these platforms and maybe one day that will change. But as an individual living in that world, we have to make peace with these systems that we are gonna have to use to understand the world around us, to relate to people, and we're all facing a microcosm of the same dilemma that you described, which is how to be moral on them, knowing that the platforms make it more appealing and enticing and rewarding than it's ever been to do things that we would otherwise consider immoral. And they make it harder and harder and more of a disincentive to try to be responsible with even just individual words that we might use on dashing off a tweet, because each of these things that might feel like you're just at a stoplight and you have a few seconds and you're just gonna dash off a comment, but they all play into this broader system. They're all training the algorithm. They're all training yourself. They're training your peers, other users. And the maybe the best thing that you can do, I mean, you should, 
you should try to modulate your usage. You should try to be really thoughtful about how often do I really have to be on it? I post like 5% as much as I used to, but probably the best thing you can do is just to be really aware about when you go to tweet something or post something or to record something on YouTube, being thoughtful about, is this because I think this is a good idea and what I wanna do, or is it because this giant corporation has nudged me towards doing that because they wanna make a little bit more money off of mm-hmm. me and try to addict other users to make more money off of them? And what, what do I want my input into this giant system that is shaping everything in the entire world to be? Mm-hmm. And conversely, applying that same rubric to your consumption. Like, yes. do I really need to watch this video or click right. on this link or whatever? Right. Like I right. think just being much more mindful and responsive versus reactive. Mm. And there are little tricks you can do. You can set up times where your phone will shut off certain apps. You can turn your phone onto grayscale, which is actually mm-hmm. incredibly helpful at making it less addictive. It doesn't take away too much from it. But ultimately I think it's just about knowing. Yeah. And it's just about trying to find that will to decide what the right thing is gonna be and then to do it, even if it might feel really good to look at some more tweets. It's tough, man. My uh, eldest stepson, he's 27 now. Mm-hmm. He, it, him and his brother are among the most analog people that I know, which nice. speaks to the, you know that generation yeah. has a different, it's, it's interesting. Like yeah. y- some young people are more analog than a lot of people they know. that are my peers, right? right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So he went and got the light phone, you know, the light phone? No. So it's a, it's a it's a cell phone that comes with just a rudimentary stack of apps. Like you can listen to podcasts huh. on it. Oh, that's cool. But it's a it's a black and white um, like LCD screen. Oh, I think I have seen these. And you can do text, mm. but it they make it all very hard, right? Like right. and it's it's a tiny little thing. And he's like, this is what I'm doing now. Like I'm for, forget the iPhone, and he lasted a couple months, but. It just became impossible for him to be in the world and communicate effectively with people. Right. Like, it, right. and he ultimately ended up going back because right. this is how powerful We're these things are. To these yeah. things, I bet that I bet that you know exactly where your phone is right now. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, bet, I bet everybody. If you're, I know where my <laughs> phone is. They've done these studies. It is an appendage. They, it might right. as well be embedded yes. inside my brain. You, you know, know, it is a really thing. fascinating thing to do. Sit down with someone if they have their phone out and take their phone off the table and watch them. It would, it's like you took their arm off. Just watch how they react to seeing their phone taken away from them. Cause it does feel like an extension of ourselves. There's not something that we acknowledge to ourselves because it's not fun to admit that. But yeah. if you become aware of it, I think it makes it a little easier to be kind of thoughtful. Like, okay, that phone is not actually me. It's not actually my community. It's not my social network. It's not my, uh, friends and family, it's just this little beeping device mm-hmm. that has some cool stuff on it occasionally. And oh, so rudimentary in the singularity to yeah. which we're headed, right? right. We'll look right. back, can you believe they carried these things around? <laughs> I know. And it's amazing, when you put it that way, it's amazing how vast and rapid the changes have been given that smartphones, the kind of modern smartphones that we have now are so, are they're so new. So new. That was crazy about it's, going to Myanmar. It's hard to remember right? yes. pre-iPhone right. and yet it was kind of yesterday. It was kind of yesterday. And there you can go to countries where like Myanmar I went to right before they opened up to the outside world and there were no smartphones. You couldn't get a SIM card. And then I went three years later and everybody had a smartphone and it's the same people. But the way that they think, the way that they relate, the way that they talk had completely changed over three years due largely in part. And this is something that people 
there would tell you and told mm-hmm. me this just little piece of technology that had dropped into their hands. Yeah, so the iPhone, was that 2006, 2007 when that debuted? That sounds right, I got mine in 08. Yeah. So, but it was still a number of years before the app economy was really up on its feet. So right. it wasn't necessarily the iPhone per se, right. the, what because we that was now. just a Blackberry with a touchscreen right. until the app store really kicked into gear and right. all these third-party apps started to become mobile first. Right. So that wasn't really until, that 20, didn't really kick in until- 2010 maybe. Yeah, 2010, right? Yeah, so we're talking right. about 12 years. And everything has completely changed. Completely changed. Yeah. I don't know what it's gonna be like in another 20 uh-huh. or we'll all be farmers in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it, gonna be, is it gonna be Mad Max Fisher <laughs> or, uh, or are we gonna go back to some kind of agrarian bucolic Or we're gonna society? find out. I don't know. You're the soothsayer. You're the truth teller. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> That's the next well, book. we'll have you back to okay, great. You know, explain that. Um, like I said at the outset, I, this is a really important book, The Chaos Machine. It, it, as of the recording of this, it hasn't come out yet. I'm sure it's going to be huge. You got a beautiful, amazing review in the New York Times today, right? I saw that, that just came out. I knew which it was coming great. out this morning. I did not sleep at all. Cool. I was so nervous, but oh, yeah. I, was, <laughs> I was happy. I was very relieved. No, it was very this. good. Yeah. It was very good. And uh, this is going to put you right in the center of this important conversation that so many of us are having. And like I said, it is, it is, you know, if not the most important, one of the most important conversations that we need to be having. This affects all of us. And this book really does an incredible job of not only unearthing truths, but really taking the reader through the most comprehensive kind of uh, traverse of all the issues that come into play here. So, you know, well done. It's a, it's, I mean, I can't imagine the amount of work that went into putting this book together. It's incredible. You've written a book. So, no, yeah, but not like, a book like this, you know, this is a, this is a different thing. This took you all over the world and hundreds of interviews with yeah. all kinds of people. And, you know, it's a book about foreign diploma, international diplomacy. It's about technology. It's about history, uh, sociology, psychology, neuroscience, like everything comes into play here. Well, I'm excited to see it out in the world and thank you Mm. for shining a spotlight on it. And thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, It's a pleasure talking to you. So if people wanna connect with you, um, do you want them to? connect with you on social media. Sure, I'm on, listen, I'm as addicted <laughs> yeah. as everyone else. Well, you got else. a book coming out. So you're, I'm sure you're online now in a way that oh, yeah. probably you're not generally. I'm, I'm already thinking through how much outrage can I get into my book promotion mm. tweets to get the most engagement. Right, I'm are you, really, are you A-B really testing? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a room full of monkeys typing right. up tweets to mm. see what's going to get the most. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Vladimir Putin is helping me out. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Um, okay, so if people wanna connect with you, what's the, where do you wanna send them? Uh, Twitter, Max underscore Fisher is probably the best place. Or if you wanna email me, max.fisher at nytimes.com. Right, and they can read your writing in the New York Times. nytimes.com. Yeah, cool. All right, man, thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. Peace. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Cale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davy Greenberg and Grayson Wilder. Graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Jessica Miranda, Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants, namaste. Yeah.